This is not the media. This is hell. Hi, listener. Hi, it's This is Hell producer Alex, uh, and you know what that means. It means Chuck is sick, and I'm playing an episode from the archives. Uh, the recent archives this time. I'm playing the best interviews of 2019 so far, as decided by me an hour and a half before our time slot. If you have midterm memory problems, this is just going to seem like a really strong, all-new four-hour episode of the show. And if you don't, well, these interviews are all worth revisiting anyway. There's really great stuff here. It's This is Hell at its best uh, when it's on the radio. Okay, this week, Marco Roth explains why climate realism requires climate radicalism. Richard Seymour surveys the contradictory landscape of British politics and capital. Adrian Marie Brown explores the radical, liberatory potential of pleasure. Barnaby Rain examines the true nature of anti-Semitism in contemporary society. Marshall Auerbeck explains how capitalism manufactured the Boeing 737 crisis. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin remembers nostalgically all the futures of our past. Okay, here's Marco. The Trump administration has been repeatedly criticized for not having a plan to address climate change and of being in denial of any pending doom extreme weather will bring. But as our first guest argues, Trump is not in denial and does have a plan. And it's a very, very, very scary plan. Here to explain, senior and founding editor of N Plus One magazine, Marco Roth, is the lead writer of an article by N Plus One's editors, The Best of a Bad Situation. This is what extinction feels like from the inside, which appears in Overtime, the winter 2019 edition of N Plus One. Welcome to This Is Hell, Marco. Thanks, Chuck. You can find all of the writing of N Plus One at N plus one mag.com that's all spelled out n-p-l-u-s-o-n-e-m-a-g you write 10 or 15 years ago it was possible to think of the polar bear and the white rhinoceros as martyrs dying off to shame us into better harmony with the natural world not ruined archaic torsos but videos of extinct creatures would say you must change your life i'm going to continue that quote in a little bit but why do you think shaming us into fighting climate change. Why didn't that work? That's a great question. Uh, boy, that, that's, a, that's a perfect lead question. Um, you know, there, there, was a, there was a feeling that, that uh, you know, we, were, we were in a kind of liberal mode of uh, educating the public into understanding climate change and understanding what was happening to us. And so all of the, the, the bag of tricks that kind of worked uh, in the 70s uh, for the ecological movement were pulled out. So you had, you know, you had animal videos. Um, <laughs> you had great reporting, uh, Elizabeth Colbert in The, in the New Yorker, uh, who I read about later in the article. But that, those, the broadcast for that somehow didn't reach the people that it was supposed to reach, uh, <laughs> which were the people in, uh, um, in oil companies and, and elsewhere who had another plan. And I think, as you point out in your, in your intro, uh, a lot of us still would like to believe that the problem with climate change is ignorance. That that, uh, that there's denial, that there's lack of knowledge, that but but I think we've we've reached a point now where it's clear that that when you have willed ignorance, which is what this is uh, from the administration and from other sources, uh, willed ignorance, there's nothing you can do. Uh, 
So you know you can show a you know you could show a video of a refugee of a polar bear. <laughs> that's not gonna that's not gonna that's not gonna move someone who is who is determined so hard not to see uh, or not to, or or not to believe that that's a problem. You write that a dark glimmer of progressive thinking, the bargaining phrase phase, as it were. Uh, the was discernible in the Kyoto Protocol and at the Paris conference where the prime minister of Tuvalu, uh, Tuvalu's call to impose a strict not-to-be-exceeded target of a 1.5 degrees Celsius rise in global temperature, the minimum required to save his people from a homeless future in a world host- hostile to refugees and immigrants, was dismissed in favor of pragmatic mitigating maneuvers intended to induce the cooperation of holdout nations such as the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. Now, the five stages of denial are anger, bargaining, depression, and then you also have acceptance. Have we moved on from bargaining to depression, or have we even gone further into acceptance of climate change? And to what extent can acceptance actually lead to finally fighting against climate change? It's interesting that you you bring up the the five stages of grief in that that way, uh, because I have have an ongoing... Now we're we're getting into... uh, both individual and, and uh, mass uh, psychology. Uh, I always felt like the, the five stages of grief were—they're um, not actually stages, but they're—that they're like that they're always present. Um, so the, the notion that you move, you know, through these um, as as like phases in history is itself a kind of progressive thinking. <laughs> uh, whereas in fact, these stages are there at every moment in the grieving process. So. Um, have we moved into the, you know, I think there, there's a, we may have shuttled back into, uh, from the, the Republican side, the denial stage, um, and certainly from uh, the side of people who understand what's happening to the earth, the anger stage. Um, I, I mean, I, I could actually be in favor of more anger, um, <laughs> more anger rather than acceptance, because there are certain things to, to, to assume um, that, that this is a, a grieving process is to assume that, that, that we really can't do anything about it. Uh, and that moment of acceptance, I think, has yet to come and would be very dangerous politically uh, if, if we thought we were in the acceptance phase. Uh, it's funny, in the, also in the, in the passage that you just read, it made me realize, first of all, that Tuvalu uh, needs to be, uh, you know, it, it comes at you in the sentence uh, when you read it aloud uh, more, than I, more than I expected when I wrote it. Um, but, it's nice to see Tuvalu there. It's a small island in the Pacific, but they, you know, their their prime minister was like, if you don't stick to a strict uh, 1.5 uh, Celsius uh, temperature limit, we don't exist, and we uh, will all become refugees. And there was even a moment where they they threatened to uh, immediately emigrate to uh, to Europe, uh, which scared the Europeans because nobody wants uh, refugees. Uh, that, however. Uh, that didn't work, but I think what we've seen with uh, climate change negotiations, uh, you know, carbon limit negotiations, this is also happening uh, in the background of the the Gilejean protest movement in France. Uh, that you know, these these small steps occasion these huge reactions, and this is also the same we saw with the healthcare law in the United States, where like you know, there was there was a preemptive attempt to negotiate with the you know with people with the idea that we could just gradually 
you know, ease ourselves into carbon reduction or ease ourselves into uh, having a, a better healthcare system that, you know, we wouldn't antagonize the insurance companies. We wouldn't antagonize the oil companies. We would give them time to, you know, maybe like switch over into uh, renewable energy sources. I mean, Exxon has billions of dollars. Why don't they invest in uh, alternative energy? They would be very well positioned to do so. That's not their model. Uh, and so even the smallest uh, attempts at amelioration have been met with these massive uh, pushbacks that, that you would expect, you know, if uh, if you were proposing the most radical solution. So why not actually at this point think about the most radical solutions to climate change, which would be completely decoupling the economy from carbon-based uh, fuels and carbon-based energy sources. You write that whatever they may say or tweet, the Trump administration is not in denial about climate change. In fact, it has the perverse distinction of being the first U.S. administration to address it head-on. How do you right. see the Trump administration not being in denial about climate change and about addressing it head-on? Well, I think this is the uh, this is the counterintuitive move that that we are asking readers of this essay to to make, right? Which is to that you know, as I said at the beginning, this thought was that you could educate people and that there was that there was a um, you know that, that this is this is a distinguished tradition um, in thinking about. Uh, evil and wrong, uh, going back to Aristotle, which all evil is only ignorance. People only do things that are bad out of a lack of knowledge. Um, that I think turns out not to be true. Um, and I think that the what ha- what what the um, what the Trump administration has shown us is that I mean these are people who who believe, who I think on a deep level on an in, you know I mean you know, I'm not talking about Trump himself. I have no idea what is in that person's mind. I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows. Um, but the people that he surrounded himself with, so in, in this case, I don't even think this is a Trump problem. This is a Republican Party problem. Uh, you know, the, the Pruitts, the, the Zinks, the, you know, the, the, those, that, that cast of characters that we know. Um, they understand that climate change is happening. They understand uh, something of the, you know, they're aware that there, you know, that there are more storms, that the that the average temperatures are going up. That the, you know, they may not have a great nuanced understanding of feedback loops um, in the way that, that the science has shown. You know, it's possible that these things can in fact accelerate very quickly. That we're not just like steady. You know, we're not slowly increasing carbon levels. Like carbon, you know, begets carbon. The, you know, the ice sheets melt. This is this is crazy. You know, they, so they're they're they're. The timeline that, that we're being given, even you know, is, is slightly more alarming than people are aware of. But they, their feeling is, oh, this is like an investment opportunity for us. And you know, if somebody was like, hey, you know, there's going to be dramatically fewer resources, but you can control more of them. Uh, their their understanding of this is like, oh yeah, like we could win this. We could game plan for how to, you know, I want my family to survive. But I don't care about anybody else's family, so I'm just going to plan things so my family survives and not your family. And I don't, you know, who cares about the refugees? Um, we want to win the future, if, even if that future is like a scorched earth future. They're they're trained to understand that they need to be in the best position, and you know, they they will they will be the last person standing with their family or you know in a bunker, you know, on a hill. <laughs> it's, it's the survivalist. Uh, uh, response to climate change. So I think what we, rather than calling it climate change denial, I mean, we could even call it climate change survivalism. Um, and that 
that expresses more clearly the attitude of the administration, which is basically, we can't do anything to stop this, except that, so, so at this point, we have to make sure that, that we are in a position where we're not going to die. <laughs> and, and that we is very, and we is not America, the we is not the, you know, a lot of people, the we is, the, we is the, the, you know, the Trump family mafia state model. And this is also true in Russia, where you have a mafia state, anywhere where you have a, a, a narrow oligarchic state, it's very difficult to fight climate change because the, the, the people in charge are just like, hey, like we can move somewhere, you know, we could up sticks to Canada. And if you see where, uh, I mean, this is, it, you know, it's interesting that the Gulf nations um, are very smart in, in how they've been buying land uh, outside the Gulf states um, <laughs> and what they're planning to do with it. And, the, you know, because they also know that, the, you know, Qatar and, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, these, these, are, these are states that are not going to be habitable in, uh, you know, 30 to 40 years. So why do you think that individuals, survivalist reaction to climate change, why do you think that proved so popular, popular enough to, uh, for Trump to win the Electoral College? Why do you think that uh, proves, uh, ends up being more popular than any kind of collective response we can make so more people would survive the worst aspects of abrupt climate change? Yeah, I think, well, it, it's not as though the election was, was presented as a moratorium on, on, uh, or referendum on responses to climate. Uh, and as we know, I mean, the... The Democratic Party has been very shy about running on this issue um, until recently. So for voters, it's not, you know, I think it, it's, it's not something that people really vote on consciously. Um, but the, you know, you're kind of asking, what is the appeal? <laughs> what is the appeal of, of, uh, of, of Trump in certain ways, which is, and, and it is the offer, and I, and I think, you know, we saw that we, we can see this in various other forms, like with the economy, where it's where it's a zero sum uh, uh, thing, where it's like you are in direct competition. Um, direct competition is nasty. You will have to, uh, you know, if somebody's coming into the country, they're going to take your job, even if that's not true. <laughs> if somebody is, uh, you know, so there, so so the attitude down the line is is one of the refusal of collectivity, um, and and there's always the sense of you know. You can make it as a as a solo individual, and I think you know we're, we're also like culturally prepped for this um, in so many ways. Uh, the popularity of shows like The Walking Dead, um, these kind of these these apocalyptic scenarios, which is always about you know the, the um, reality shows like Naked and Afraid. Like we, there's there's this weird moment in the culture where it's like uh, people are being socialized into into actually into being decivilized and thinking that they can you know somehow make it on their own as long as they uh, you know work out in the right way get enough guns and canned food and this is, you know this this goes deep in the american unconscious the frontier ethos but in this case is you know it it becomes very it's hard to uh, you know people forget that the um the the rhetoric of the frontier was also about uh, conquering and using nature. That nature is not going to be available anymore to be conquered or used. Like that, there will not be resources out there in the wilderness. This is not a wilderness kind of issue. This is a this is a survival of the planet issue. Um, so it really does require. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's easier for people who live in cities, strangely, um, to have a sense of what collective action is. Um, or would look like, or it's, e- or it's easier for people who also live in uh, in you know, communities that have a relationship to um, 
to ecological cycles, uh, a strong relationship to ecological cycles to understand how they could act collectively. But, you know, it, it gets, there's so much mist around, you know, how do I get my energy to my house? You know, I mean, most people don't even know that, right? So they, would, they, would they know where their local power plant is? Would they know what's behind the local power plant? Would, and, and if they could understand how easily the switch to uh, alternative energy could be, could be done, they might, you know, they might, in fact, even be on board with a collective solution. So in the face of climate change, do we empathize with zombies that have no idea of what's taking place around them? And, and if we do, what does that reveal to, to you about us and the way that we do see and react to and respond to climate change? Yeah, the que- well, right, there's, always, there's always this question about who are the zombies, and I think... Um... <laughs> Everybody has different answers to this. I mean, you know, I, my 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 answer in the essay was that the zombies are are actually us, but they're they're the displaced us. So it, it's it's one more way of allowing uh, individuals to think like, oh, I'm not responsible for for this human catastrophe that's unfolding. It's these other humans that are responsible. I mean, you know, we're kind of we're all responsible. Um, so uh, we do have to empathize. Uh, and and there is the, so I'm not saying that. Uh, that education is impossible on this topic, um, that, uh, you know, we shouldn't assume people learn more, but we should assume that uh, there is a strong broadcast from the Republican Party, uh, those with interest in the Republican Party, particularly the oil industry, um, and, and, you know, and also like the Koch brothers with their plastics and paper interest in obscuring the problem just to the point where they can like get enough profits and money uh, hoarded away so that they can save themselves. So if you're not in the 1% category, um, anybody not in the 1% category needs to come up <laughs> with a collective solution to climate change. And, and, that, and that does have to happen um, through education. Uh, Part of the point of this essay, though, was to was to um, deal with the sense that there are, there are people who already know, and then how do they feel with you know what is it like going through the day <laughs> with the knowledge that that that, that the, even everything that you know is not helping right now, um, and and to and to point you know to say it's probably not helping because you're not going to you're not going to educate the one percent on this. <laughs> um, the one percent has decided what they want to do uh, about it, and you know again you know. There, there are some, there are some progressive billionaires out there who, who would actually like to live in a world that, uh, that is not a, uh, a warmed, you know, husk. And then the other thing is, it's very hard to imagine what the, you know, you can, you know, I, I, I personally, I mean, I've been, I've been writing about this for a while, and every time I'm like, what would the world look like, uh, you know, with um, not just sea level rise, but complete deforestation, um, with desertification. It's, it becomes, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's an exercise in really, like, if you can imagine it, it's probably going to be worse than what you can imagine um, at the end stage. So I keep running up against this. I think, well, you know, who wants to say, you know, is my imagination really the, the limit on uh, on the worst that could happen, and I have to say, as a human being, no, because human human the failure of human imagination is part of what has brought us into this uh, you know edge of the cliff position that we're in. 
You also write that we need to ditch the patriarchal uh, models of wealth and status reproduction that have been constitutive of uh, nearly all expansionist war-making and resource-depleting societies of the past 10,000 years. Do we have to, is it necessary for (laughs) us to end patriarchy in order to end climate change? Because I'm not too sure which one we're going to be better at changing. In some ways, it, one will be the effect of the other. <laughs> I mean, well, actually, I mean, I can imagine an end to patriarchy that would not solve an end to climate change, um, uh, or that would not really ameliorate climate change. The other thing is, like, we're not going to end climate change. We're just going to, you know, we're we're going to put the brakes on something that will, you know, if if we're lucky, we're going to end up in a, a, you know, back in into a three hundred year cycle of carbon reduction that will mitigate the. the 300-year cycle of carbon accumulation that we've been in, you know, shooting up since uh, since the advent of the steam engine. Um, what what does have to what would have to happen though is is that there there would have to be. I mean, it it, it is very deeply wired into human uh, patriarchal societies that that one way to deal with conditions of stress uh, in. And, and scarcity in the culture is to go out and plunder and conquer other cultures. Um, that's the model that would no longer function under climate change. Although that's the one that we that we're starting to kind of see uh, very scarily. Um, you know, so far it's been a defensive response. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think one one has to see the the immigration paranoia in this country as an as an aspect of fear of climate change. This is certainly true. Um, Elsewhere in the world, in Hungary, uh, which I believe you'll be talking about later, um, and uh, and in Burma, where you have again the the, the rise of uh, of ethnic distinctions that are you know if you have a, if, if there's a small ethnic minority that is uh, in, in a um, vulnerable position uh, as as resources across the board dwindle, that ethnic minority is going to be in trouble. Um, so that's what would have to happen i mean you know again we're in the position of you it's it's we're not gonna, like nobody's going to nobody's going to fight their way out of this problem there there are no more worlds left to conquer we're not going to go to mars you know <laughs> and even and even if we did go to mars like wouldn't we like wouldn't we still want earth and mars um so all of the kind of the the zero sum thinking um that is part of that 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 we that we use, you know that that helped uh, build a you know great American empire by by taking stuff away from other people, that's not going to work. So so that's really what that's really the challenge, uh, and that's what's behind that that patriarchy sense. And you mentioned uh, how the immigration debate is also steeped in climate change. How much is the immigration debate today, in your opinion, the result of climate change? If it is. What explain to you why so rarely we hear climate change mentioned in the debate over immigration and borders? Yeah, I think that climate change and part of the part of the, what the article argues is that um, if there's this counterintuitive move that you have to accept that, that denial is not denial out of ignorance. Denial is denial when you know something is happening and you don't want to see it. So everybody knows a little bit about climate change. Uh, it has created an atmosphere of pervasive anxiety. It's created an atmosphere of pervasive scarcity. So that we, we already feel that, there, that we live in this atmosphere of scarcity um, and, and that, that everything is under threat. And so 
in so with that with this undercurrent of anxiety about a, a real global problem, you also have you know it, it allows other anxieties that are that are near to the surface to to be to be played upon. And so immigration, in the sense that you know, it, it, elsewhere in the world, I mean, this is all you know. Especially this is it's more the case in Europe where um, the Europeans are freaking out about. Uh, Refugees coming over from uh, from Africa and the Middle East, um, but the U.S. has now borrowed its, its immigration politics from the European right wing, and I mean the, the notion that that uh, somehow you know there isn't. Like, I mean, I'm always I'm always amused when I talk to uh, you know I have, a, I have a good friend in Denmark, and he's like, "Aren't you worried about all these immigrants coming in because there's there's not enough land?" And you're like, "Okay, that's true in Denmark, but you know." Nobody lives in South Dakota. Nobody lives in Montana. Nobody. Lives. <laughs> America is full of these empty states, um, and and you know we with the right planning, you know, imagine if if somebody uh, planned an ecological community that was running, uh, you know, off uh, off uh, renewable energy sources, you could build a city in any of these places that could house, uh, you know, millions of people, and uh, and it wouldn't be a problem. Um, so yes, I think the Ameri- but the the. Uh, the response, the the thing that that seems to be triggering everyone in in the U.S. about is this idea that somehow we are also uh, facing a, a scarcity crisis, you know, a scarcity of land, a scarcity of in the labor market, uh, and these and these crises are all manufactured. Um, but the climate change anxiety, I think, makes it easier for politicians like like Trump and Steve King to demagogue on immigration issues. You're right. We are everyday climate deniers the way we are everyday death deniers. Are we in the same kind of denial about climate change as we are about death? Has any unwillingness to come to terms with our own mortality also led to us not coming to terms with climate change, that there's just something inherent about the human spirit that we just don't want to think about death? And that's what leads oh, us oh, to... Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a version of the boomer problem. Um, where you know the, the 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 sense of like we know we're gonna die, um, and the you know the boomers being the great you know they're like yeah but like I'm you know I'm just hitting the prime of life in sixty you know at sixty five I can do whatever I want, <laughs> um, I'm gonna and and I'm gonna spend my resources trying to live forever in exactly the way that I've lived before, uh, and that's that's a form of death denial in which you know like we, on some level you know you're gonna they, these people still know they're gonna die, um, they just they're just not ready to understand what dying is like. Um, and 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 to and to come to terms with death as an aspect of life. So I think what what we've come, what what climate change has shown us or should show us is that our civilization, this this carbon based, um, massively exploitative, um, you know, rapacious thing that we've been living in, you know, kind of you know, in, in a grand sweep. Really, when one can go back to uh, to the steam engine here, um, that civilization is ending, and and we know that that civilization is ending, even if we don't admit it. The question is, what civilization are we preparing? And to accept one's death in a certain way would also mean to to uh, prepare those that come after us to have a good life, right? and to say, you know, I may not have had the opportunity for these things in my life, so but but the next generation will have that opportunity. Um, you know, they, like they, 
or in this case, I would like the next generation, my children's generation, to be able to breathe. <laughs> I would like them to be able to go swimming. I would, like, you know, think basic things, <laughs> um, you know, without getting uh, without getting their their skins burned off by an acid by by an acidified ocean or stung to death by jellyfish. I mean, you know, or like have access to fresh water. We're 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 now back to very basic things, but that's the kind of civilization that we would have to prepare. Um, and so to accept climate change is to accept that the civilization that we're in is dying and, and needs to die um, and will die. Uh, and that, that death can be angry and chaotic and you know, nasty and full of war. And, and, you know, I mean, it can, it could be a really, um, you know, in, in the end, the ends of civilizations are not pretty. Uh, usually, but we do have this opportunity uh, as a species to create the possibility of another civilization um, that would that would take over from the carbon-based uh, civilization that has been ruling. You know, this, you know, that's been pretty much the paradigm for for three hundred years. You write about LED bulbs. One of the f- you write one of the few successful attempts to reduce carbon emissions in the United States in the twenty first century. Say a bright spot. <laughs> no, I was not going to. Resulted okay. in the slow replacement of heat. Gen- though I do love puns. Heat generating yellow incandescent light bulbs with cold white-blue light-emitting diodes. But the back-of-envelope math suggests that even if every incandescent bulb used in the United States for residential and commercial applications were replaced by its diode equivalent, the likely total differential would be a percentage point of our total energy use. How much do token actions and policies like this distract us from addressing climate change? Or do they actually help us address climate change because they allow for or make us more tolerant of government and industry intrusions in our life that, uh, you know, affect a kind of change in our lifestyles that could help us fight climate change? Yeah, and that's a, that's another great question that I don't, I don't have hard and fast answers to. I think we've certainly seen that there's a, that there's an ambivalence in any reformist type initiative. Um, this, you know, a, with carbon cap and trade, this idea that, you know, oh, like poorer nations will trade their carbon credits to richer nations so the richer nations can keep uh, polluting and these poorer nations will have to come up with, <laughs> they'll have to do something else. Uh, you know, they'll have to draw their water from the well by hand just the way they did, you know, thousands of years. There's a little condescension in that. And as we've seen also, like with the, um, with things like uh, uh, attempts to do regressive uh, gas taxes in France that really you know that kind of move uh, really backfires when you um, say we're going to reduce your quality of life uh, to the middle and lower classes uh, in order to uh, save the earth and they look around and they're like yeah but you're still uh, driving you know your <laughs> your gas guzzling car and you can afford to uh, to pay uh, the extra tax and and uh, this is not a fair exchange like why do I have to bear the burden of uh, saving the earth or those polar bears that you like to talk about uh, fuck you I'm going to go pardon me I got to say that on the air I knew it was live radio um, I'm going to uh, protest against the tax and and your government and then there's going to and the polar bears can go to hell um, or you know in this case the planet can go to hell so the light bulb thing is an interesting the light bulb thing was it was the comic moment in the essay. I thought it was like it was important. To, it was important to have a little bit of humor in these essays, uh, and and we we were sitting around kvetching about light bulbs for a long time. And this this was an Obama era uh, initiative to um, 
to reduce uh, carbon emissions through uh, you know the the energy that's expended in um, both in like lighting your lighting your apartments and streets and all these things. But it turns out that it's really only about five uh, percent of total U.S. energy use uh, lighting. So again, this is an issue where like there was a huge amount of uh, political capital uh, expended um, to change a very minor thing. And the result of that is a, is a real reduction in, in quality of life that's noticeable. And, and if you're, you know, if you um, uh, spend time in institutions that are forced to use, you know, LED bulbs, like schools, <laughs> hospitals, those places are, are, are these, you know, the lighting is like the lighting of the, of the apocalypse. I mean, it's so dead. It's so, this is also, of course, the light that comes from our computer screens. Um, we're based in this cool light all the time. It's actually not, it, it's, uh, it's been shown, um, studies have been done that shows that it like, increases stress levels. It doesn't, you know, it, you're, you can't really sleep by it. You also can't read text by it, um, which, is a, which is something that, that hasn't been, uh, I think, adequately uh, discussed. So this, you had, you, this, this is a classic example of like uh, top-down government thing that um, that, that uh, pleases both sides of the uh, of the government doesn't work narrative. Because <laughs> um, the Republicans, okay, you know, if, if you were a climate change denier or if you were a big government hater, you would say, I don't want these. You know, why is the government intruding into my life with these light bulbs? Um, and uh, or if you you know, and, and, and you would be right in a certain sense um, because. Again, it's only five percent of total U.S. energy. It's not a lot. You know, if everybody switched over to these things, it's a very minor thing. Um, so, nevertheless, there, there's you know the, part of the dominant model of, of, of ecology that that, that that we learned, I think, growing up, um, you know, in in the U.S. in the seventies, and probably, is that is that ecology somehow has to be joyless? Like you're you're, you're conserving. You're uh, you're not uh, you know you're sacrificing, um, and so the the light bulb uh, thing plays into the the Puritan Protestant ethic that that that, that makes people think oh we have, like you know unless it's inconvenient we're not really saving the earth but the fact is <laughs> that that it's inconvenient and you're not saving the earth really anyway um, so I, I think government as it's planning these interventions should understand that that they're that they're um, they don't really need to impose uh, an ascetic tax on people, and uh, there's a way, there's a kind of way to, to joyfully save the earth, uh, and those are the ways that we should be looking at. Do we currently have the resources to save ourselves from the worst aspects of climate change, and is that window of opportunity closing that we now have the resources, but we may not have those resources for long? Uh, well, I'm not an expert on this. I'm I'm just a writer and an editor and a researcher. Um, but what I have read, uh, I think the uh, the Robert Pollan essay in the New Left Review uh, that I cite in the piece does make a very strong case that uh, we do have right now the available alternative energy um, technologies, um, and it's a question of scaling them and the scale. Uh, you know, for a while, solar was looking very good, um, and it was—I mean—it was very competitive. It was, of course, undermined by Trump's tariffs um, because there were there were solar companies that were cooperating between the U.S. and China and Europe. Those cooperations may now be at risk. Uh, so, so the so it was—it seemed like you know we were going to get to the point where um, cheap solar was a real thing. Um, 
hydroelectric power is a real thing. Um, probably, uh, I mean, Pollan argues that we would still need to use nuclear energy, which I know makes people very nervous. Um, but uh, so if you, I mean, if you take the the solar, wind, uh, hydro, and nuclear uh, quartet, uh, it seems yes, we actually have very much uh, the resources available to switch uh, away from carbon fuels. Um, and his model suggests that if you could do this um, by taking, um, I forget what the, it's a, it's, a, it's a fraction of global GDP that amounts to like about a trillion dollars a year um, and invest it. Um, so this, you know, some, some organization would have to run this, probably the UN. Um, it would basically collect a global GDP tax and put all of that money into uh, switching over you know, switching the grid, basically, um, and he says that that by uh, by, by mid-century uh, that would put um, uh, that would put us on track uh, to have a full, uh, a fully uh, non-carbon-based uh, economy. Um, I hope that's true. I hope he's right. Uh, Bob has been on our show in the past. Bob Pollan, you also cite a couple of other past guests on our show, Elizabeth Colbert and Kate Aronoff. So our listeners who are familiar with their work, they can find in your writing as well. If information can't fight climate change, what can? Hmm. Am I, well... Am I saying that information can't fight climate change? I think information alone is never the answer. I think if I if I suggested that that that, that any attempt to inform uh, the public is useless, I I, I take that back. Um, obviously, we 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 need to inform. The question is, um, what do you uh, when you've reached a certain point where it's clear that you've been informing people at the top, uh, you know, the the policymakers, the people running for office, the people who are um, you know, then put in charge of various departments, and they're not listening. Um, at that point, um, it's no longer, it's not a, an information problem, it's a, it's a political will problem. And the only thing that's going to help is um, making sure that these people uh, are not in office <laughs> or anywhere near power. And I think uh, the way, you know, I, there, there are various ways to do that. I think, I think, Actually, what we would need in certain ways is more information. I mean, somebody needs to uh, start running on a real profound climate change campaign. I think everyone is scared of being Al Gore. Um, but I think we need to remember that Al Gore himself didn't really run on environmental issues in 2000 because they weren't that present then. So he, 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 he played down um, the stuff that became uh, the inconvenient truth when he was running for office. And so we don't, you know, we haven't really tested what a candidate running on uh, running like on a green new deal uh, platform uh, would look like. I mean, a, you know, AOC great as she is, she didn't run on a green new deal when she was running for Congress. That's something she came, she, she brought in after she won. Um, it would be interesting to see what someone running on those issues would, would do um, and what a campaign based around that would be like. And that obviously would be based on informing the voters um, and combating some of the, the nonsense that, uh, that comes at them. Mostly the issue has been downplayed electorally I mean, in the sense that like, Republicans don't, you know, I mean, Trump didn't run against, you know, he wasn't running on a platform of, hey, we're going to bust the carbon limits through the roof. Um, but 
and nobody really challenged him either on uh, on why he wanted to increase carbon emissions. I mean, nobody, you know, it would be a simple question to ask in a debate to say, why do you want to increase carbon emissions? What's the what's the value of increasing carbon emissions? Um, because everything that that's not uh, an amelioration at this point is an increase in carbon emissions. So I think every politician needs to answer why do they want to increase carbon emissions. One last question for you, Marco. We have been speaking with senior and founding editor of N Plus One magazine, Marco Roth. He is the lead writer of an article by N Plus One's editors, The Best of a Bad Situation, This is What Extinction Feels Like from the Inside, which appears in Overtime, the winter 2019 edition of N Plus One. You can find all the writing of N Plus One at nplusonemag.com. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com. As we do for all of our guests, Marco, our final question is the question from hell. The question we might hate to answer, you might hate to answer, we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Does belief in the immortal soul lead to climate change? That is the question from hell. Um, yeah, there's a there's a sense in which wait, my 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 wife would say, "What do you mean by soul? Let us talk about uh, our understanding of the soul." Um, I don't think it has to, but I think um, one of the kind of secret uh, the the secret sauce in in persistent climate change denial, um, even among very educated people is this belief in some kind of human immortality. Um, it, doesn't, it could be the immortality of the soul. Um, it, it could also be immortality through, uh, through culture, through literature. So even people who don't believe in the immortality of the soul believe that you know, their works will live on after them. Um, and climate change threatens actually the idea that you, know, you want to think profoundly about uh, an apocalyptic uh, end to human civilization. Um, you cannot have your you cannot have your works. Nobody's going to be around to to read your novel. <laughs> Nobody's going to be around to read Proust or uh, um, you know. Or, or, so you ha- you would have to start really fantasizing about things like you know, like oh maybe there'll be like intel maybe we'll create intelligent robots and it will be like uh, the end of uh, Spielberg Kubrick AI where the intelligent robots will be non carbon uh, based. They don't have to breathe oxygen and. Uh, Somewhere in their files will be uh, all of uh, world history and literature, and that's a form of collective immortality. Uh, but there, humans love to fantasize about forms of collective immortality. Um, I think, obviously, if, if you uh, if you believe that uh, after you die, your soul will, will uh, zoom off somewhere um, into another universe or another galaxy, and there's a home for it, then you might be less attached to the idea of Earth continuing. Um, but uh, that's, you know, I, I, there, within religious movements, I mean, one should say that the religious movements have actually done a very good job, <laughs> some of them. I mean, even, even the Catholic Church, bad as it is, has, has uh, you know, I mean, Pope Francis is more progressive on climate change than, uh, than most of the uh, leaders of, the, of, uh, of nations right now. Um, so I can't, I can't condemn, uh, I'm not going to use this as a platform to, uh, to say religion is bad, um, but, but the one, 
something that, that if you think seriously about climate change, you have to think about the ways in which your own fantasies of immortality, whether that's immortality of the soul, uh, whether that's immortality of, of, uh, of works, um, allow you to kind of put off the reckoning with what is, is quite close to happening now. Uh, so every day that you go through, they're like, oh, like I just wrote a, like somebody's going to read this and somebody's going to listen to this, this uh, radio show um, in 20 years. Like, no, they might not. Like, you've got to do stuff now. <laughs> well, on that happy thought, Marco, I really appreciate you being on the show. This was this is a fantastic conversation. The article is really amazing. And as I said, you cite a lot of the past guests on our show who we've discussed climate change with, the economics in the past, labor in the past. So really appreciate you being on the show and great work over at N Plus One and count on us bugging you in the future to have you back on the show. Great. Thank you so much. Those were really tough questions. I, uh, I, I feel baked over the coals. Sweet. Thank you very much. You're listening to the best of This Is Hell, colon, 2019, colon, so far on WNUR. How the hell did we get to Brexit? For that matter, what the hell happened to foster a rise of the far-right-wing nationalist populace we're seeing pop up all over the world? Here to guide us through all the horrible crap that had to happen to get us to Brexit, live from London, writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour returns to This Is Hell to discuss his article that he posted this week at his Patreon page, patreon.com slash WTF titled Brexit and the White Working Class. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Richard. Hi, thanks for having me. Richard is a contributing editor of Salvage. His most recent book is 2016's Corbin, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. You can find out more about Richard by following him on Twitter at Leninology, or you can go to his website, leninology.co.uk. You write, why if the government is so weak, is the Tory vote still solid? Why do you see the government of Theresa May as weak? The Conservatives still hold a plurality in uh, Parliament. So why is her or her party seen as weak? Well, because they are unable to deliver uh, any form of Brexit that would uh, get a majority in the House of Commons. And they've decided that Brexit is the number one policy on which their uh, record will be judged. Uh, that's been the case since Theresa May took the leadership in 2016. Uh, she built her popularity, her personal popularity, on that of her party on that. Um, party's uh, share of the vote in polls went up from about the low 30s to 40%, and then increasingly even went a bit higher um, up until the um, snap election, catastrophic mis- misjudgment, snap election called in June 2017. So they were doing quite well up until then. Um, and since then, they've been in crisis. They've been in crisis because they no longer have even a parliamentary majority. So they previously had a majority of MPs and they could get votes through. Um, now they depend upon the backing of the uh, headbangers, the Democratic Unionist Party, which is from the six counties of Northern Ireland, where I'm from. And they are, uh, as uh, has been uh, wittily put by, I think, Owen Jones, the political wing of the 17th century. They are a radical Protestant uh, group. Uh, they, are, they have a history of uh, involvement in right-wing paramilitarism, and they have absolutely zero truck with modernity, let alone with um, the European Union, which they tend to regard as anti-Christian. 
um, indeed as the papal antichrist. So this is um, the kind of um, politics uh, that uh, is structuring um, the current moment. But the, the, there should be no mistake that the government is, in its own terms, rather weak. Um, it's just that it's not weak for electoral reasons. You write, Labour's electoral recovery crushed the Tory lead. This is in the 2017 vote, but not the Tory vote. Labour did well in spite of a popular Conservative Party. Even today, amid a crisis for the government with the backbenches split and colleagues sharpening their knives against May and no Brexit deal uh, availing, the Tories pull close to 40%. Then you ask, why is keeping or what is keeping conservative voters loyal? And you also have the answer, the same thing that is tearing the party apart from constituency branch to cabinet, Brexit. How is Brexit both tearing the conservative party apart and keeping members loyal? Well, uh, keeping voters loyal, I should say. But um, in terms of tearing the party apart, um, there's something to be said for a good old bit of Marxist reductionism, um, class reductionism, in as much as this seems to me to be a straightforward class issue. If you're uh, a member of the capitalist class, barring a few outliers like Rupert Murdoch and various others, the majority of the capitalist class in the United Kingdom is very strongly oriented towards Europe. Um, they have strong trade connections with Europe. They depend upon exporting to Europe. Their, um, their basic model of building profit and uh, um, developing business uh, is based upon uh, the UK being a member of the European Union. Uh, on top of that, of course, a lot of foreign direct investment, uh, which has been one of the major pillars of uh, British economic growth, especially since the 1980s and the collapse of manufacturing in this country, um, depends upon access to European markets. So um, the traditional big business establishment of the Conservative Party uh, is very much against Brexit. They're prepared to go along with some version of Brexit because obviously uh, they don't have the means to stop it. Um, but they want the softest Brexit possible, uh, commensurate with um, the vote. The um, traditional sort of what you might call the um, uh, middle-class right um, that uh, usually makes up the rank and file of the Conservative Party. And you can think about this as the kind of people who attend constituency branches, retired professionals, um, loan traders, people who run pubs, um, people who uh, run taxi cabs and so on, who make their money um, either um, as in a, in, a, in a sort of professional way or uh, as loan operators on the market. So they're not big business, but nor are they, uh, you know, employed. They're not employees. Um, and they tend to have a, a certain perspective that goes along with that. One of the uh, things that uh, guides their point of view about the European Union is that they bitterly resent the rule and the uh, regulations that being a member of the European Union entails. These rules and regulations, um, from the point of view of the larger firms, are quite you know, mild and very manageable. Um, but for uh, smaller firms, you know, laws to do with holidays, um, to do with uh, employment regulations and human rights and all the rest of it can be a bit uh, tiresome. Also, things like workplace safety standards or product standards and so on can be quite difficult. 
Um, and they tend to take the view anyway that com- countries shouldn't all have the same regulatory um, and political framework, uh, but rather should be competing. And so there should be a bit of uh, robust competition. And that might mean that one country might try to outbid another country by uh, cutting taxes further and uh, cutting up its uh, regulatory framework uh, in such a way as to benefit business and attract more investment. That's the basic idea. So this is a, a class rift between the traditional middle class right, who are very nationalistic, who are very um, uh, small business minded, um, who, or if they are associated with big businesses, tend to make their money much further afield than the European Union. You know, uh, they may have investments in the United States or um, parts of Southeast Asia and so on. Um, but uh, the the point is that you can't give both of these constituencies uh, what they want. And the other aspect of this is, of course, that in the 2016 referendum, it wasn't the business uh, wing of the Conservative Party that won. It was the middle class reactionaries. Um, it was those who either were still members of the Conservative Party or who had split away to form uh, the UK Independence Party, an anti-European party that did very well in the 2015 general election um, and whose existence is one of the reasons uh, that there was a referendum on membership of the European Union in the first place. Um, They, by winning the referendum, effectively um, won the argument for the future direction of the Conservative Party. And therefore, um, to a very large extent, the future direction of British capitalism. Um, Now, Theresa May is a leader who has promised that she will listen to these people, but she has to somehow listen to them without letting them win, because she can't deliver the kind of hard Brexit that they want. They want out. They don't care if there's a deal. They don't want to be part of a customs union. They don't want to be part of the single market. They don't want to be um, subordinated to European Court of Justice jurisdiction. Um, These views are incommensurable. What impact do you think the Conservative Party becoming the party of Brexit, and it seems to me like uh, of only about being Brexit, what, what has... Uh, what impact has that had on the Conservative Party? What's the effect on the Conservative Party when they're defined by Brexit? And is that sustainable to, as far as having even a plurality within Parliament to only be the party of Brexit? Well, uh, to be fair, Brexit condenses multitudes, you know. Um, it's a whole strategic orientation uh, for the future of capitalism. So um, if you look at what people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, who's a very right-wing Tory, what people like them, them want is um, a version of British capitalism that um, is, you know, uh, has a much smaller welfare state, has much lower taxes on corporate profits and uh, business investment, much lower taxes on higher income. Um, that has a much um, more pro-business regulatory structure. It's not a question of deregulation, as sometimes people put it. It's a question of uh, regulations being much more geared towards uh, favoring especially large corporations and especially um, some of the uh, more cowboy wings of uh, financial capital. So um, there's there's a whole lot condensed within it. And for the time being, at least, 
um, the majority of conservative voters uh, are very animated by this issue. Um, and if the Tories were to stop being the party of Brexit, they would stop having uh, 40% of the vote or thereabouts. Um, in terms of the long-term effects, I think what it's done uh, is temporarily um, overcome a conservatism because they had been suffering uh, hemorrhaging members and votes since uh, the 1990s. So um, the big issue over which uh, they lost uh, members and votes in 1992 was what was called the ERM crisis. This was a crisis that was brought about by Britain's alignment with the European uh, single currency as it as it was coming into being. Um, the value of the pound was uh, hitched to the value of um, effectively the German mark. And this resulted in a financial crisis um, for the government. And it uh, produced a major split within conservatism over uh, future alignment with Europe. But um, it uh, accelerated the you know, um, existing uh, problems with the Conservative Party's voting base. And uh, the result is that by, between 1992 and 2016, the Conservative Party lost uh, the majority of its membership. It had had one million members in 1992. By 2016, it had about 150,000 members and declining and a very aging membership. It's not being replaced by younger members. So it's not um, or was not sustainable. Brexit has briefly interrupted that. It's uh, briefly infused the ranks with some um, uh, long departed members. And of course, it's added a whole bunch of voters um, to the base that previously was uh, between 30 and 35 percent or thereabouts. So they've, you know, they they built a viable uh, electoral base for the time being. Um, but once Brexit is actually implemented, it's hard to see how that can be sustained. I want to ask you a couple of general questions about Brexit, and then we'll get back into your writing uh, because mm -hmm. of the way that the media narrative is here in the United States. If yeah. the voters of the UK could do it all over again, would UK voters support Brexit? And do you think they want to do it all over again? Um, it's very hard to say, uh, because uh, I think it depends what you mean. If if you mean have the same campaign, then I'm pretty certain that uh, Leave would win again, um, because the um, the the reasons for the defeat of the Remain campaign haven't been analysed, haven't been assimilated, haven't been overcome. It was overwhelmingly a campaign run by clueless. Um, businessmen uh, by Downing Street um, and by people, you know, like uh, the, the leaders of the campaign were people who had long lost touch with voters, um, right-wing politicians from the Labour Party, centre-hugging politicians from the Conservative Party, um, and a lot of uh, clueless businessmen and uh, uh, celebrities, uh, like D-list celebrities. Um, and they ran a very poor campaign that didn't uh, have give people any concrete reasons to remain in the European Union. 
The only people who were excited and agitated over this issue were, of course, the right wing and the racist. Um, and so if this campaign had been run in the 1970s, it would have been a little bit different because the left at that point was probably the main uh, opponent of what was then the European Economic Community. Um, and it would have uh, had quite a lot of trade union um, opposition to Europe and a lot of um, sort of socialist opposition because the European uh, Economic Community was seen then as basically a club for business. And uh, it was seen as profoundly anti-socialist, anti-government intervention, anti-planning, all the rest of it. Um, that's not the way it was run uh, in 2016. Uh, by that time, a number of things had changed uh, in British politics. The first thing that had changed was that by uh, the end of the 1980s, after years of defeat at the hands of Miss Thatcher, the trade unions had abandoned their anti-European position on the basis that Europe had some fairly exiguous laws and regulations that would protect labor, organized labor, um, from government attacks. And they thought, well, you know, we're not going to get much from Westminster, but we can hang on to these rules, um, and that will be some sort of defense. Um, and at the same time, the Labour Party, whose position had been to withdraw from the European economic community, um, uh, adopted a pro-European stance uh, as of 1989, um, very quickly. And uh, since then, it was the more pro-European party, more pro-European in general than the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party, um, uh, after the end of the Cold War, when there was no longer any need for uh, the unity of Europe against uh, communism and so, so on, um, uh, decided that it was safe to split over the question of Europe. And so that's around the early 90s, you start to see that. So by 2016, the major anti-European forces are those of the middle class right, um, while the left and the labor movement has just got used to not even talking about Europe you know, rather not even have to enter into the conversation. So you end up with a campaign where the left doesn't really have much of a, a voice at all anyway, um, where the, the funding is going either to, um, you know, uh, these large business-led campaigns that don't connect with people, or it's dark money being funneled into the Brexit right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the left is basically nowhere. And I fear that if we were to have a, a referendum along those lines again, we'd get pretty much the same result. But, you know, the worst thing would be uh, if the result was uh, only slightly different. In other words, if we got 52-48 the other way. So if you got, say, 52 for Remain, 48 for Leave, uh, in a second referendum, say, the trouble with that is it would still be too close to uh, count as a kind of consensus. And it would um, be interpreted by Brexiters um, and Brexit voters as a betrayal. You know, we had this vote. It was once in a lifetime. You staged a referendum again because you didn't like the result. You got this very narrow victory and now you're going to uh, impose it on us. And of course, you, you would be setting up a betrayal myth. Um, but at this stage, I tend to think all the options are bad. Staying in, leaving, soft Brexit, hard Brexit, they all have different risks um, and, a, and a different set of possibilities, too. You write how the media portrays the passions 
of the white working class. And you write how this is tangled up with the same weave of misleading ideological assumptions that led to journalists talking up uh, the new far right wing party, the UKIP's working class credentials. They even talked about a UKIP effect that was possible. What misleading ideological assumptions by the media uh, led to this view of Brexit and UKIP being driven by white working class passions and giving those movements working class credentials. What are what are the wrong assumptions that journalists made? Well, you know, this all started in the new Labour era when um, the only way in which you were allowed to talk about class, if you remember, Tony Blair declared the class war over. Uh, so the only way you were allowed to acknowledge class at all was to talk about this so-called white working class, and only then in the context of cultural grievance, of um, losses in ethnic competition, you know, of a sense that, you know, we have multiculturalism now, all these other cultures are, are listened to, they get certain rights, we have nothing, nobody pays any attention to us, blah blah So you could talk about um, working class issues only if they were constructed through racism, uh, ethnic resentment, um, competition, and so on, and nationalism. So from this point of view, the working class, um, through this filter of whiteness, as it were, um, is not militant. It's not engaged in class struggle. It's not striking. Uh, you know, it's not doing anything dangerous or subversive. It's conformist. It's traditionalist. It likes to wrap itself in the the, the flag, and uh, it's very um, narrow-minded, nationalistic, uh, socially sadistic, and, you know, you can patronize such people. And that was a political tendency that began back in the sort of early 2000s, and perhaps a bit earlier than that. And when um, groups like the BNP uh, started to gain support in northern cities, um, British National Party was a, a fascist party, um, which was... Uh, very good at uh, sort of uh, pretending otherwise for the media, but it was basically a fascist organization. And uh, they gained some votes in northern um, working-class cities and towns. And you know the old ecological fallacy, which is that, uh, you know, if if they gained votes in a a working-class area, that must mean their votes are working-class. Actually, by and large, they got uh, a mixture of votes. They got some working-class votes. They got quite a lot of middle-class votes, too. Um, but there was this idea that you could um, you couldn't uh, ever attribute fascism and racist views to educated middle class people. It had to be the incoherent, inarticulate cry of grievance on the part of these um, uh, morally endangered white workers, and their moral endangerment was that they would slip into the so-called underclass. You know. Uh, people who don't know how to raise their families, people whose children are feral, people whose teenagers get pregnant, people who don't uh, obey teachers in class and uh, show lack of discipline, you know, that kind of uh, moral endangerment. Um, So essentially, um, that was the sort of ideological preparation. And what you saw um, in the sort of uh, intervening period was that the Labour Party's vote in a lot of these areas, stopped turning out. Millions of working-class voters, far from gravitating to the far right, just stopped voting. Labour lost, uh, between 1997 and 2010, 5 million largely working-class votes. The majority of them were um, lost to non-voting, not to uh, left or right uh, parties. In 
insofar as they did vote, it tended to be parties that positioned themselves as being slightly to the left of where the Labour Party was at that time. But um, nonetheless, um, there's always, um, in any of these myths, a grain of um, truth. And the grain of truth is that even though the majority of the vote isn't uh, particularly working class uh, for these right-wing parties, or rather, um, you know, they haven't traditionally been particularly working class, they did begin to pick up a lot of working class votes in the recent years. Um, and even though the majority of working class voters still supported Labour or various left-wing or centre-left alternatives, um, there was a significant section of the working class that had moved to the right. And if you look at it in the 20th century in this country, um, conservatism always had a fairly big um, um, working class vote. It was about a third of the working class backed the conservatives. Um, and so, you know, it's not, it's not that this uh, idea is totally false. It's just presented in a completely mythological way that is about scapegoating um, white working class people, as it were, for racism um, and for nationalism and chauvinism. Um, and of course, you know, one of the effects of doing that is that it justifies political parties and the media in moving to the right, because they can say, we're just responding to the concerns that ordinary people have. Um, so it's been a very convenient myth um, for uh, people who want to anchor politics uh, to the right. Um, so, so that it doesn't gravitate towards more radical solutions. And you can see uh, from the response to Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party just how terrified the political and media establishment is in this country of any serious left-wing discourse. You write that Tony Blair in a major 1998 speech signaled the new consensus that the class war was over in Westminster, saying the class war, as he put it, was over. So how, to what degree did, and I'm not just saying in the UK even, is this the case with uh, all of the world and the rising far-right movements, to what degree did uh, liberals uh, turning their back on class concerns, class grievances, uh, turning their back on workers, to what degree did that uh, abandoning of unions, did that embrace of neoliberalism lead to... And uh, the rise of the far right, because there was nobody there to tell them to express, to let them express and understand the class grievances anymore. And they were suddenly exploited by a far right that all they wanted to do was exploit their racial grievances. To what degree is this all about nothing more than the left abandoning its base of workers? Well, I think we should be um, uh, we should make some distinctions here. I don't think it's strictly speaking the left um, that's done this abandoning. The left was crushed. And let's be clear about this: the organised left within the Labour Party, and insofar as there was a left in the Democratic Party too, uh, was crushed. Um, and uh, the left within the trade union movement was um, also um, defeated. You know, one after another. Uh, the left in PASOK uh, in Greece was defeated. So basically, um, I don't think it's a question of the left abandoning the working class so much as the part of the left that um, would have been interested in the working class was defeated alongside working class movements. So here's the thing. It's not just a question of class grievances. You know, do you listen to the, uh, the, the anger and the grievances of the working class? It's a question of organization. 
you know. Um, so it's not just a question of whether these poor victims are listened to and represented by someone. It's a question of whether they can do anything uh, about their plight, whether they can be self-organized. And when they can't, instead, you, that's exactly when you get this victimhood culture. Um, and, it, you know, that victimhood can come out in various ways. It can go left or it can go right. But generally speaking, I have to say, I think it's uh, biases towards uh, political reaction. So it's um, it's partly a matter of, uh, you know, when we talk about Tony Blair and New Labour saying the class war is over, very much trying to uh, distinguish themselves from uh, their working class roots. Um, and trying to say, look, we're we're becoming something different. We're a new party. We're we're not interested in being just a working class party anymore. Well, uh, to some extent, that reflects their reading of uh, long term social trajectories and tendencies. They believed uh, that the working class, uh, as a political agency, was in decline. They believed uh, this was an argument that started to come out. Uh, within uh, left-wing circles and within the Labour Party um, uh, back in the 1970s and early 80s. Um, and the idea that, as Eric Hobsbawm, the famous historian, once put it, the forward march of Labour has been halted, um, gained a lot of ground in the Labour Party uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. So this wasn't just Tony Blair um, you know, declaring this by by fiat, as it were, it was the product of a, a, a real concrete historical experiences, which they interpreted in a particular way. They interpreted defeat. Uh, they interpreted electoral setbacks. They interpreted um, the deep crisis of laborism itself. Uh, and it had been in a long period of crisis before Tony Blair took the leadership um, as uh, indication that class uh, strategies were no longer viable. So uh, the point isn't uh, for me um, simply to point the finger at Tony Blair and at liberals, you know, the Clintonites and all the rest of it, and say, you let the working class down. It's rather that the defeat of the working class uh, movement let these people uh, come in and uh, impose this distinctively neoliberal direction on, on policy. And had the working class not suffered from these defeats, that wouldn't have happened. And that then raises some other questions. It raises an interesting question about why it was possible for these defeats to happen. What was going on? Um, and that's a deeper um, uh, structural question, as well as a question about the strategies and tactics used by the left and the labor movement at that time. So in other words, I'm saying, you know, we should avoid a victimology. We should avoid a, a tale in which people have just been abandoned, because that, to me, uh, is exactly the kind of tale that the populist right are using. Um, it's not straightforwardly false. There is some kind of abandoning going on, but that's not all that's going on. Uh, that's a really interesting uh, distinction to make. And you're just mentioning the problems that were happening within uh, laborism, within the labor movement in general in the UK. Yeah. Uh, in the US, the problems within the labor movement uh, that led to uh, the Democratic Party not having as much interest or not being as linked to unions as, as they were in the past. One of the reasons and one that was focused on a great deal by the media and by the uh, by the right was that unions were corrupt. Is that the same issue that they were involved with organized crime? Is that the same kind of issue that British labor faced, or was it a different problem within labor? 
Oh, no. I mean, it was completely different. No. I mean, look, as regards the trade unions, uh, the Labour Party in the post-war period, when it was at its peak um, in terms of electoral support and in terms of its ability to deliver on policy, uh, rested upon a broad social coalition of the essentially the left wing of the working class and the left wing of the middle class. So you had... Um, you had the sort of people who were in trade unions would tended to be uh, would would vote Labour. Um, you had um, professionals who were more working in the humanities, the arts, um, in um, uh, administration. They tended to be uh, pro Labour, um, and that was a broad enough uh, social basis. But by the um, late 1970s, the middle class part of that coalition is beginning to resent the uh, power of organized labor and to fear their militancy and to fear what they can do. And so, you know, by the early 1980s, um, the the sort of middle class part of the labor coalition had split away to form the Social Democratic Party. Um, and their basic idea was we're going to keep the post-war social compromise based on welfare and, con- uh, you know, some degree of controlled capitalism alive. And we're going to do that by asserting our independence from both the working class and business. You know, we won't be a party of business like the Tories. We won't be in the pockets of the trade unions like Labour. And they had a lot of influence on um, the subsequent uh, reaction against the trade unions. The biggest um, sort of reason for the reaction against the trade unions was that in 1970s, it been extraordinarily militant. And it had worked for a long period of time. Um, but by the late 1970s, uh, you know, they were striking and not getting very far. They had a Labour government. The Labour government wasn't uh, delivering. Um, uh, in fact, the trade union leadership at that time uh, was uh, supporting a government that was imposing uh, real terms pay cuts of about 20%. So you had this growing gap between, uh, on the one hand, the trade union leaderships who wanted to support a Labour government who saw it as their government. And that Labour government, in order to restore profitability to industry, was holding down wage rises, uh, in effect making sure that workers were taking massive pay cuts in order to restore profitability to large enterprises. Um, trade union leaders were part of that. They uh, they called it the social contract. By the late 1970s, that had broken down completely. There were wildcat strikes. There was uh, a lot of rancor. There was bitterness in society. Uh, there wasn't this sense of class-wide solidarity. Um, and that's when you saw Thatcherism sort of starting to, you know, this uh, sort of aggressive ideology of competitive individualism uh, insinuate itself into the um, gaps created by the collapse of post-war laborism. So it's um, it's a complex series of factors, but uh, the trade unions in this country have never been particularly associated with corruption, I must say. Um, it's more that um, the, you know, in terms of the right-wing fear of them, they're fi- uh, frightened of their uh, potential power to, you know, march the, the workers into the Houses of Parliament and start causing a scene, you know, that kind of thing. And it's, massive, it's, it's massively exaggerated because no trade union movement in the world has been more conservative than the British trade union movement. You talk about labor being soft and being concerned, actually, being concerned about being soft. 
uh, and how what impact that had on their policymaking over the last uh, 30 years. Uh, to what degree do you see that same issue here in the United States uh, with the Democratic Party? What happens to a political party when, you know, we were talking earlier, the only thing that uh, the conservatives have going for them, or the thing they're depending on the most is Brexit. What happens to the political party's strategy when their concerns are about being perceived as soft by the opposition? Okay, so to be specific, um, they're frightened of appearing to be soft on the issue of immigration, which means they're frightened that some uh, of the vote, by no means a majority, but just enough of the vote, perhaps to deprive them of an electorally viable coalition, um, would um, see them as being too sentimental, soft uh, 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 on the issue of uh, immigration. They, um, there is a section of the uh, vote a fairly large section of the vote, who want immigration to be reduced. They want uh, the borders to be toughened. They want free movement, um, which has come with um, being a member of the European Union, to come to an end. And they um, may resent a Labour Party that is seen as, you know, too bleeding heart and so on. So that's the softness that I'm talking about. Um, And I know that, you know, there's... um, uh, a, a certain ideology, a discourse uh, in um, some centre-seeking uh, democratic circles, um, which is basically saying, well, we lost the white working class because we were too soft on uh, issues that they care about. You know, We were too concerned with uh, political correctness and multiculturalism um, and not concerned enough with the stability and security um, and, uh, you know, concerns of white workers. Inevitably, concerns is um, a euphemism for racism or something like that, or sexism or one of those issues. So um, in terms of, um, but I, actually, you know, the big difference between Labour and the Democrats is that in the last uh, decade, um, the Democrats, were faced with a completely different political terrain in terms of immigration policy because, of course, you had this massive wave of migration workers' struggle, um, beginning with a general strike uh, in 2006. And the result of that is that the Democrats can't pursue the kinds of really right-wing nationalistic policy as regards migration that I think some of them would love to pursue. Um, it's not politically viable, particularly if you want to make sure you get the Hispanic voter to turn out. Um, uh, that's not really the case in the United Kingdom. Migrant workers tend to be talked about rather than listened to. There's no, uh, uh, there's very little organisation among them, um, and insofar as there is organisation, it's very small. It's taking place at a very small level, um, and the left hasn't really done a lot to organize them or listen to them or give them any representation or voice. I think that's a shame. I think that's a big miscalculation. If you look at the history of the British left and its triumph, generally speaking, you know, you think about the struggle against apartheid. British anti-apartheid movement was very important. Um, the uh, Stop the War movement uh, was one of the biggest in the world. The pro-Palestine movement. Many of these movements have been based upon um, the input of migrant organizers. You know, this uh, anti-apartheid movement was built in part by 
South African migrants. Um, but even if you go back, if you look at the Chartist movement, one of the most important movements in the history of the uh, British working class and the left, um, it, which fought for and in the long term won uh, the extension of democracy, the franchise to the working class, that was led by migrant workers. Now, I don't think you can build um, a real left and a real militant working class that is in some sense arbitrarily organized by uh, you know, race and nation. Uh, you can't do that. Um, and if you try to do it, uh, the result will be you weaken and divide your own side. So I think um, there's uh, softness in the sense that I was talking about earlier, you know, Labour's uh, frightened of being appeared, appearing to be soft-hearted and uh, all the rest of it when it comes to immigration. But there's also a kind of um, political soft-headedness, which I would say is unwillingness to take unpopular positions and unwillingness to defend uh, minoritarian positions in the hope uh, that by doing so, you will start to build a base of support for them. If you're not prepared to be in a minority, uh, I don't know why on earth you're in politics. Um, the whole point of uh, being in politics is to turn minorities into majorities. The right does it all the time. They're exceptionally hard-headed. They're exceptionally ruthless and brutal about it. I think we should consider doing that as well. Um, and that's, that's what I would say about softness. Was uh, you go back to the 1980s and see kind of the very beginning kernels of the rise of maybe the far right, but also the idea of Brexit in Thatcherism. Was Brexit inevitable with Thatcherism? No, I don't think so. I mean, let's be clear, Thatcher was pro-European. She was in favor of uh, she was one of the major uh, forces behind the single European Act. Uh, passed in 1986, which established the basis for what became the European Union. Um, she was in favour of uh, free movement at that time. She was in favour of um, shared political uh, and market structures. What she did later was she turned against um, aspects of the European project because she was opposed um, to uh, some fairly mild uh, sort of human rights uh, labor law and environmental regulations that were brought in in the era of Jacques Delors, uh, the, being the commissioner, the European commissioner. Um, and so there emerged a pretty uh, nationalistic uh, turn uh, in British Thatcherism. I mean, it's always been nationalistic in, in certain ways, but it became very pronounced. Um, so the Sun newspaper, which was the most popular newspaper in the country, this was a time when newspapers were still read, um, it was the most popular newspaper in the country, and it um, was the official uh, tabloid organ of Thatcherism. And it started to run uh, front pages uh, demonizing European politicians, you know, uh, headlines like Up Yours, Delors, and so on. Um, and this was, uh, you know, the, the beginning of some of this, but by no means was any of this inevitable. I mean, really, if you want to understand how it came about um, and the point at which it probably did become inevitable, which, by the way, even in the months leading up to the actual uh, referendum outcome, it wasn't clear that, you know, people would vote leave um, because, you know, it was only in the final few weeks that, a sufficient number of southern middle-class Tory voting 
uh, individuals um, who had previously gone along with uh, David Cameron and his Remain position shifted to the other side. And I think they shifted probably over the issue of immigration. Um, but if you want to understand how that situation came about, how we even uh, got to the point of having a referendum, you have to look at Britain between 2010 and 2015. Britain between 2010 and 2015 is a country that has just undergone undergone the worst crisis of capitalism since the 1930s. The left has been unable to do anything about it. The left has been nowhere. Instead, the major initiative has been uh, held by the political centre, um, who are implementing harsh neoliberal austerity. Um, in that period, there is um, a, a series of movements. There's an anti-austerity movement. It goes nowhere. There are, trade, there are trade union strikes against austerity. They go nowhere. There's a student movement. It dissipates within a couple of months. There are riots, which basically are used as the basis for, um, you know, um, uh, a serious social crackdown, judiciary, um, were let off the hook uh, in order to go after rioters. Um, and so after that point, almost every single major shock in British politics, from uh, revelations of child grooming rings in the north of England, which were attributed to Pakistani men, uh, it was a lot more complicated than that, as you can imagine, but of course it was heavily racialized in its media representation, to panics about um, halal food being fed to non-Muslim Britons in, for example, Pizza Hut, to panics about Romanian and Bulgarian migrants coming to the United Kingdom in large numbers as um, they were uh, admitted to the European Union, all the rest of it. Almost every single panic was an issue over um, uh, race, over nation, um, and it was something that drove the political consensus further to the right. Um, so that even as the government was a sort of middle-of-the-road conservative liberal coalition implementing austerity, but by and large not pushing things to the right, even, for example, passing uh, laws permitting gay marriage um, and, and some fairly mild laws uh, entrenching civil liberties. Um, the feelings on the ground were being pushed to the right. Um, so, you know, you had a lot of uh, what I would describe as sort of uh, jitteriness, anxieties, a sense of uh, things in decline, a sense of people losing something. And nothing's really fair. You know, the austerity agenda isn't working out in such a way as to protect the poor and the most vulnerable. It's protecting the rich. It's protecting bankers. And so there's a sort of circulating sense of anger, injustice, anxiety, fear. And the right are the ones who are articulating that and are gaining the most momentum and are gaining attention in the national press. And that's crucial, of course. Because, of course, as I mentioned, the national press has been talking about white working class grievance for uh, well over a decade by that point. And suddenly UKIP uh, are describing themselves as the voice of the white working class. And the media, you know, gives them blanket coverage. So they are able to uh, exploit that situation. And as a result of that, they become the most dynamic political party in the United Kingdom. They're not the biggest, but they are the ones setting the agenda. So it's a party of middle-class protest, almost no support from any of the big class, the 
battalions like the trade union movement or the uh, Confederation of British Industry or any of that. It's a very small party of middle-class protest, but because of a crisis of representation, a crisis of British politics, and all these affects of fear, anxiety, and resentment burning in the British psyche, they are able to articulate that and drive the political agenda. And they focus the political agenda on the issue of Europe, an issue which until that point had been a concern to about, I don't know, two or three percent of the electorate. Suddenly it becomes the biggest issue. Um, and, you know, that's, that's how we ended up there. Some of this comes out of the affect driving Thatcherism, but it's actually a uh, it's it's a much more recent phenomenon. I have just got more questions for you. You write that, uh, like discounting evidence of a working class Tory revival, quote, it would also be complacent to overlook the disorienting effect the vote has had on labor. It's successful vote in 2017, despite its electoral revival. Why did labor doing well in the vote disorient labor. What does it say to you? What does it reveal to us about labor when they respond to, uh, you know, doing their best in the uh, vote in decades with being disoriented? Oh, no, no, no. I Sorry, I should uh, clarify what I'm talking about there. The vote that I'm referring to is actually the Brexit vote in 2016. Oh, okay. Um, that, so, I mean, and the reason why it disoriented them was because, of course, Prior to the referendum, there was a very clear position for Labour to take. Um, Corbyn would have been a traditional anti-European Benite politician, you know, sort of traditional uh, British socialist. But uh, he had no way of uh, leading a left-wing Brexit campaign in 2016. That just wasn't going to happen. The the, the Labour Party was not going to have it. The trade union movement wouldn't have had it. So overwhelmingly, um, the position on the left was we've got to remain in the European Union. But Corbyn quite rightly said, in my opinion, you know, if we're going to remain, we have to reform the European Union. It's too undemocratic. It's too neoliberal. Uh, we need to change its rules so that we can, um, you know, have a government that is able to use uh, industrial policy, um, that is able to use certain non-competitive measures and so on and so on. Um, so uh, they they had an obvious position: remain and reform. After the referendum, uh, the only realistic position you can have, I think, is to say, "Well, we lost that vote. We have to accept it, and we have to move on." What we can we do is try to limit the damage. I mean, in my opinion, um, there's absolutely. Uh, what you might describe as a hard Lexit, you know, the Lexit being the acronym for a left-wing exit in the European Union. There's there's absolutely no political basis for that. There's uh, not the social forces capable of carrying it through. And of course, there's no convincing program for it. So it's just damage limitation we're talking about, um, reducing the economic impact of Brexit um, and humanizing its effects. However, there is a section of the Labour Party, a minority, it has to be said, uh, who are actively organising in favour of rerunning the referendum uh, with the hope of getting a different result this time. Um, and by and large, there is a sort of a feeling among the rank and file, which is not a particularly um, developed feeling. Um, it's not grounded in any profound commitment to European institutions, but there's a general feeling that, yeah, 
probably we should remain within the European Union. And it's just based on hatred of the right. It's based on hatred of racism. It's based on being pro-migrant, not wanting to be swept up into anti-immigrant racism and so on. And to that extent, quite creditable. But unfortunately, I think they can't go anywhere with it. So Labour since uh, 2016 and the Brexit vote uh, has not felt able to defend the institution of free movement within the European Union. It's uh, been a bit more defensive about migration, even though Jeremy Corbyn himself has excellent uh, credentials when it comes to anti-racism and support for migrants and refugees. This is a man, let's remember, who when he won the leadership of the Labour Party, the first thing he did was he went down to a pro-refugee demonstration in central London almost to celebrate by joining in uh, this protest. Um, that's the kind of politician he is. But he is the leader of a party whose members of parliament um, are traditionally, you know, not particularly pro-migrant, uh, and they would rather uh, swing to the right on migration than risk taking uh, what they fear might be uh, an unpopular position at the moment. So, you know, Labour is torn between this rank-and-file kind of remainerism, um, if you like, this uh, uh, sort of nebulous uh, feeling in favour of staying within the European Union, and a sort of uh, more cautious, sort of nationalist-leaning uh, kind of feeling among Labour MPs, quite a lot of Labour MPs, um, and some, not all, but some, of the shadow cabinet. Some of the people who are most closely aligned with Jeremy Corbyn um, also in favour of some kind of what you might describe as left nationalism. And that has an unfortunately uh, long history on the British left, um, and a, uh, quite a strange one in my opinion. But um, So that's one of the reasons why it's been disorienting, because as long as they're talking about things like um, nationalising utilities, uh, redistributing wealth, opposing wars, you know, all of this sort of stuff. There's a clear um, radical agenda that Labour can pursue and uh, they can have some sort of initiative. Um, when it comes to Brexit, there's there's no, how to put this, there's no radical position on Europe available. I mean, there just isn't. Not in terms of anything you can practically do. The radical position, presumably, would be to challenge the European Union on a left-wing basis, but that's just not viable at this point. So all positions that Labour can take at this point are about damage limitation and defensiveness, um, about trying to avoid the Conservatives, for example, using the opportunity of leaving the European Union to shred even those minimal protections of workers' rights and standards um, or environmental protections or uh, consumer protections, and so on. Um, Labour has to somehow stop them from doing that. That's basically what we're talking about here. That's, uh, you know, that's why Labour are um, anxious for this issue to be settled so that they can move on to talking about stuff that they are much more comfortable talking about. But I think at some point they're going to have to confront the issue uh, of uh, race, racism uh, and nationalism. And they're going to have to confront it in a fairly direct way if, that is, the, uh, they want to continue to drive to the left. Uh, if, uh, if they don't, then I think the result will be 
you'll end up with uh, a version of what used to be called blue labor, you know, which uh, combines a certain um, uh, sort of traditionalist social democratic approach to the economy with right-wing nationalistic policies. Uh, Morris Glassman, Lord Morris Glassman, who was um, the inventor of the blue labor label uh, under the leadership of Ed Miliband uh, and briefly had some cachet with the leadership, had the slogan, faith, flag, and family. And that's what he thought labor should be about. Um, you know, it's that white working class stuff again. Um, so that, that's, that's the reason for the disorientation. We have been speaking with writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour. He's talking to us live from London. This The, the last time Richard was on our show was back in 2017. Uh, right before or right after the elections that unexpectedly showed major gains by labor. Richard has a new article at his Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF, called Brexit and the White Working Class, which we've been discussing with Richard this uh, today. So, uh, Richard, one last question for you. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Or I'm just going to uh-huh. hate or I'm just going to hate this question. I, I, I don't even know if this is a good question or not. It just sounds like a good question. Uh-huh. What effect will Brexit, when implemented, have on Thatcherism? Oh, that's uh, not a bad question, actually. You know, I thought the question was going to be, uh, what am I in trouble for on social media? Which would be, <laughs> to which the answer would be everything. Um, <laughs> on any given day. Uh, as regards um, the effect of this on Thatcherism, I think we have to say that Thatcherism as a political formation um, doesn't exactly exist anymore. Um, in its traditional sense. Uh, what we saw after the period of what we might call haute Thatcherism, you know, in the 1980s, was an adaptation um, to a new uh, post-Thatcher consensus, which more or less, uh, you know, whether it's the Liberal Democrats, as it was at the time, the um, Labour Party or the Conservatives, more or less all converging around a series of uh, policies and priorities um, in terms of government, in terms of statecraft. Um, and these are the policies and the priorities established by Thatcher, right? So we've been, um, since the um, credit crunch, we've been living in the aftermath of a crisis for the post-Thatcher consensus. What you could say is that UKIP um, and the right wing of the Conservative Party represent one way of developing uh, Thatcherite ideology, you know, Thatcherism, Thatcherism always contained lots of different elements. It had its very liberal wing, um, sort of very free market, very socially liberal. Uh, they were what were called the Thatcherite mobs. And then you had the um, people who were in favor of free markets, but they were much more in favor of things like, uh, you know, school discipline, uh, the death penalty, you know, controlling borders and so on. Uh, very, much more socially authoritarian and much more interested in waving the flag. And they would be what used to be called the, the, the rockers, that's right, rockers. It was the rockers versus the mods. Um, and essentially, um, this was the uh, division. And what you can see is that um, the latter group have very much come to the fore. Um, the sort of traditionally socially liberal but very right-wing free marketeers um, uh, have become the dis- uh, the dissenters within the Conservative Party. You can see people like Michael Heseltine and Kenneth Clark, both of whom were leading figures in the Thatcher era, in Thatcher era cabinets, uh, 
um, were a big part of the um, government that smashed the backbones of the organized working class in this country, uh, broke the, tra- uh, the trade unions, broke the miners, broke the steel workers, broke the print workers, used uh, some brutal methods to do so. Today, they're regarded as bleeding hearts and liberals because they're against Brexit. Um, because they're not um, the kinds of social authoritarians uh, that UKIP are, because they don't care about issues like uh, gay marriage, and they're not particularly bothered about um, ending free movement within the European Union. Um, So that's that's one of the ways in which Thatcherism has basically, I think, split apart over the issue of the European Union. And as Brexit goes ahead, and I'm pretty sure it will, um, whether on the uh, basis of a deal or not, um, I'm fairly confident that what's going to happen is there will be a, a realignment of the sort of socially liberal faction of Thatcherism, as you might call it, with um, the right-wing leaning, centre-seeking parts of Labour and uh, the more neoliberal elements within the Liberal Democratic Party. In other words, you might see a new centre formation um, representing um, the parts of Thatcherism that are still consensual for British business and for um, the centre of the uh, British political establishment. So that's, that's roughly where I would see it going. That's that's fascinating. Richard, I really appreciate you being back on our show. Again, that's Richard Seymour. You can find his writing at patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTFs. Thank you so much for being back on our show, and I promise it'll be far sooner than uh, 15 months from now that you'll be back on our show. Can I can I say something? Sure. Okay. Uh, Salvage, the magazine I'm a uh, founding editor on, um, is launching its own Patreon. So it's not just my Patreon. Salvage has a Patreon. If you like Salvage, come on our Patreon and support us. Thank you. Is it patreon.com slash salvage? Do you know? Patreon.com slash salvage, salvage.zone. Okay. That's the word, salvage.zone. Okay. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Richard, and I'll go sign up for that right now. All right. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the best of This Is Hell, colon, 2019, colon, so far on WNUR. There is political power in our passions and our desire for pleasure. We can actually feel good about ourselves and the world we live in by engaging in what our next guest calls pleasure activism. Yes, activism can feel good, and if political activism can actually give you pleasure, then guess what people will actually want to do more? Here to explain social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, emergent strategist, doula, healer, anti-extraordinaire, and political activist, Adrian Marie Brown, author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Welcome to This Is Hell, Adrian. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's great to have you on the show. Adrian is also author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and co-author of 2015's Octavia's Brood, science fiction from social justice movements, an anthology of sci-fi written by organizers and visionaries. You can find out more about Octavia's Brood at octaviasbrood.com, octaviasbrood.com. So let's start with the really obvious question. What is pleasure activism? (laughs) Great. I think it breaks down in basically two ways. One is 
reclaiming our God-given, nature-given birthright of pleasure, that actually all of us are wired for pleasure, and it's only oppression and colonization that have made us believe otherwise. And then the second piece is actually leaning into the things that give us pleasure and, and thinking about how we bring our whole analysis into those things so that they're not compromising or not numbing us, but actually helping us feel more satisfied and content and joyful in our lives. How does colonization undermine pleasure? And what do you mean by when you're talking about colonization, you're not just talking about the history of colonialism, you're talking about something larger than that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's the colonialism that, you know, got us into the U.S. and have a Western um, control over most resources in the world. But then I think there's also the colonization of white supremacy over our imaginations and over our sense of self. There's the colonization of patriarchy over our sense of equality. There's the colonization of heteronormativity. There are ways that um, our sense of self and our ability to create an identity that is about being empowered and fully alive and fully awakened, that that gets taken from us in the process of oppression. Um, You know, as a Black woman, for instance, in this country, the way that I came in and the way my ancestors, my lineage comes into this country is as three-fifths of a person able to be raped, able to be bred, able to be used as a body in any way that a white slave owner wanted. That's the legacy of of the bodies that look like mine in this country. And what I'm talking about is then how do we reclaim from that a wholeness, a whole self, and actually be able to have the right to pleasure. And Audre Lorde is one of the fundamental voices in this text. I include her essay, The Uses of the Erotic, as a foundational text in the book. And one of the things she talks about is once we've actually experienced that complete aliveness, that total erotic awakening, it becomes impossible to settle for suffering. You write that pleasure activism is the work we do to reclaim our whole, happy, and satisfiable selves from the impacts, delusions, and limitations of oppression and or supremacy. Does pleasure activism then prioritize the pursuit of happiness? Does it make social happiness its goal? And is it more about an activist's individual pleasure? I guess that's three different questions. Let's just start with, does does <laughs> does pleasure activism prioritize the pursuit of happiness? So it doesn't prioritize the pursuit of it. It almost prioritizes relaxing into it, relaxing into the idea that we get to be content, that that's not something we should have to be fighting for, that we actually get to experience this joy. And it says that suffering is not the total purpose of our lives here. It shouldn't be the way that we bond with each other, that we come together, that we only, we're only only in community because of how horrific our lives are. It's saying, let's come together because we can bring each other joy and we can bring each other pleasure and contentment. How do we organize our communities and our lives around that? And how do we make sure those things that bring us contentment are not um, things that then cause a great harm? So there's a big framework in the book of harm reduction, which is something that I was taught and I'm so grateful that I was taught. It's like, how do we reduce the harms of those things that bring us pleasure and acknowledge that we live in a world that is actually really difficult, right? (laughs) So there's a lot of reasons why people turn to sex, turn to drugs, turn to escape. And it's sort of saying, okay, how do we acknowledge that there's all these reasons that drive people to that, that we live in a, in a, a harsh world and an unequal world? And then how from that place do we still get to claim, I, I have the right to be here. I have the right to feel good. And I don't want to cause myself harm while I'm doing that. I don't want to cause others harm. 
so much of this, I think, is actually about getting in right relationship with each other and right relationship with this planet we live on. So is this about inner individual pleasure? How can you have collective pleasure? Mm. That's great. That's a great question. I mean, that's one of the things I'm trying to explore throughout the book. There's a lineage of this book that is um, that goes back to Octavia Butler, who is a Black science fiction writer who has heavily influenced everything I've done. And she wrote science fiction in which, um, in story after story, the answer to most of the problems was, in some way, community. And it was finding those places in community where you felt like you could be whole and you felt safe to be your, in, your entire self, that you weren't compromising some aspect of yourself in order to be a part of the community. And I actually think the only way that we'll get to experience abundance and pleasure and, and collective contentment on this planet is if we start to orient ourselves towards collective pleasures. I think if we orient towards individual pleasure, we go down this path that takes us towards individual excess and individual greed. And I think a lot of what we understand as the way that capitalism works in this country is rooted in this idea that we're individuals, that we're not interdependent and interconnected on this planet. And so some people take too much and overindulge, and then others are left with not enough. So, you know, one of the things I often talk about is, like, I love a hot tub. I love a good hot tub. I'm not advocating for a world in which, like, no one has a hot tub. I want a world in which everyone has access to a hot tub. And right now I live in a collective home where there's a hot tub <laughs> that we can all share. Now it's broken, so we all have to share getting it fixed. But, you know, that to me, the idea is how do we identify these things that give us pleasure and, and release and that are a balm to our systems and that make life worth living? How do we make that available to everyone? So do you think you can truly experience pleasure then individually? Is there a certain, is it a different kind of pleasure when it's a collective pleasure? Mm, I love that. I mean, I think you absolutely can experience individually. And I think a lot of people do that. And it's one of the things I've been looking at. And I do a bunch of social justice work. And what I see happen a lot is people work themselves to the bone and then they go off as individuals and have a sabbatical or take a break, take a vacation and do individual things to just nourish themselves and then try to recover, you know, come back into movement. Like, okay, I'm well rested. But if you come back in and it's like, I, I, you know, I did this. I took a sabbatical in 2012 and I came back like I'm restored. I'm renewed. I feel amazing. But I was coming back into a space where no one else had taken a break. Everyone else is so exhausted. And we don't even have a practice in place to be like, let's stagger this. Let's make sure that we're working, but that we're really sharing the load to make sure everyone gets a break. And so one of the things I think about is, well, how do we structure society so we're not even in the cycle of having to burn ourselves out completely and then step away as individuals and then come back? What would it look like to structure our movements so that they felt good and that they were sustaining the people who were a part of them? And in that question kind of led me into this study which is like, well, what are the things that do feel good? <laughs> what can we learn from that? And so much is you have to be able to feel. A lot of us are just numbing. We're numbing our way through our entire lives. And we think that that's the best we can get. It's like work hard, be miserable, come home, numb yourself out, go to sleep, next day do it again. And what I'm positing is we have to begin to practice the kind of lives and pleasure and communities that we want to create so that we get that into our system and we won't settle for anything less. Earlier, you were saying that we only connect through suffering, and I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. First of all, 
can we connect through suffering in the same way that we can connect through pleasure, through happiness? I mean, I think there's so many things that can bond us. I, in this past year, have gone through losing a number of people. And actually, just last night was at the memorial services for a member of my community, Mama Lila Cabell, long-term member of the community. And it was incredible to connect with all the people who were grieving for her. And then inside that moment, I was very aware that like, we're grieving for this person who brought a ton of pleasure to all of our lives. She was a vibrant human being. She was always smiling, even when she was working so hard. You got the sense that she felt blessed by the work that she was doing and that she was enjoying it. And she is another model for me, right? So it's like in that moment of suffering and grief, even in that moment, what we're really longing for and what we're grieving for is something that brought us great pleasure and joy. I don't think the two things are totally disconnected. I don't think they should be disconnected. But what I often see happen is great culminations where it's like this person has been shot. This um, attack has happened in our community. This funding has been cut. And in that moment, we come together and we are complaining and we are really, um, really continuously enforcing that our power belongs to someone else. And then we have to demand back from them our joy, our equity, our, you know, and that's the cycle that I want to break. For me, I want us to come together around the things that actually bring us joy, make us feel powerful, make us have a sense of abundance together. And then I want us to grow from that place, deepen from that place, understand that what we pay attention to grows. So if we grow, if we pay attention all the time to the things that make us suffer and the things that make us feel powerless, I think that's what we grow is a sense of there's nothing I can do. I can only grind in this way. I'll never get to experience joy in my lifetime. And I'm a testament to the fact that another way is possible, (laughs) right? Like, I'm like, oh, I know what it is to be in communities that are centering themselves around loving and caring for each other and lifting each other up. And those movements are having a huge impact in Black liberation work right now. Do you you see that reinforced in the kind of media coverage we see where they talk about the resilience of a town after a tornado. Or you hear people, like here in Chicago, if there's a big snowstorm, you'll hear people in the media, the news anchors saying, oh, it's so great when there's a huge snowstorm because you see how much people support each other by getting out of each other's way on the sidewalk or helping digging out of the snow or whatever the case is. Do you think the media, what do you think the impact is of the media constantly celebrating the resilience after disasters and the suf- and the shared suffering of the public. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think that one of the, the sad things in the, in the media is that resilience gets told as an individual story and that resilience are told as like one act, one small act that someone's doing for another person. But often, and you know, I live in Detroit, often that narrative of resilience is used to avoid actually coming through and providing support and resources to people. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned that because the story I see much more often in the media is the story of our suffering and the violence that we're doing to each other. And, um, you know, what I think of as the bad news or the crisis news. And I find that most of the people in my life listening to the news, especially this past few years, is so much more traumatizing and damaging um, than it is informative, exciting, um, invigorating, making you feel proud to be a human or alive. And it's one of the things I actually pay attention to is like, what are the stories that we are co-creating and what are the stories we're telling? 
Are we telling stories of our own victory? And are we telling stories of the ways that we're supporting each other? And in those moments after the storm, you know, I, I look at like Puerto Rico and think about New Orleans. I think about the places I've been. It's that combination of great suffering and great recovery, recovering from harm. And I think that pleasure is one of the things that helps make us truly resilient, right? Not just rescuing and covering the ground that we should have covered by those elected officials and people that we have invested in to support us. When we're just covering that ground for survival. I think we push past that into thriving when we're able to find humor and connection and community in those spaces. This is why I loved your book. Uh, so you write, uh, pleasure activists seek to understand and learn from the politics and power dynamics inside of everything that makes us feel good. This includes sex and the erotic yeah. drugs, fashion, humor, passion work, uh, connection, reading, cooking and or eating, music and other arts, and so much more. Why are politics that make us feel good necessarily good politics? Can't people who are bad people be, feel good about bad things and then that creates bad <laughs> politics? <laughs> yes, Chuck, work it. I see you working around in this question. I mean, I would say this. I feel like I've made a note in the beginning about a word about excess because I think that actually everyone does deserve to feel good. But I think that a lot of when you talk about like bad people, you know, I think a lot of times bad people are folks who have gotten twisted like their relationship with other humans or their relationship with the planet has gotten twisted. They believe they can take without having to return, without having to give. It's mutuality and being able to sense what is enough that actually brings pleasure, right? If you're never satisfied, you're not actually getting pleasure. You're going through the motions. You might be pleasing someone else, but you're not actually experiencing that for yourself. And that's a lot of the cycle I want to break. But I also think there's a huge section in the book about sex in this Me Too era. And a lot of that was written because it's like, so what do we do about the fact that nearly half of the species has been socialized to engage in bad behavior when it comes to intimate relationships? And it's like, you know, a lot of the move over the past few decades about my lifetime has been desexualize everything, desexualize the workplace, make more rules, shut down the energy. And I find that I don't see that work very often. What I see is stuff gets repressed and then it comes out in other ways, often in harmful ways. And so one of the things I'm really looking at is how do we create the processes and structures and begin to really practice them so that bad behavior gets shut down without having to dispose of human beings. We understand like if you're swimming in the water of toxic masculinity and you become a toxic masculine person, then how do we rescue you from that water, right? Well, I think the way you do it is by beginning to practice something else. Instead of saying you should never, ever, ever feel attracted to anyone, it's more like you need to learn how to accurately communicate around attraction. You need to understand how to hear a no or a boundary, how to tell if someone's not interested, um, and how to continue the relationship. I think that happens so often where it's like you express attraction and someone's not into you, and then it's like the relationship has to be over. Instead of just being like, hey, I'm not interested. There's so many human beings. Keep it moving, right? We can be friends. There might be another option. And I think because masculinity has gotten so toxified, any form of rejection can lead to violence. Um, and that, again, it's like that when you think of that bad behavior, I'm like, okay, it's the behavior, it's the harm that we want to remove. And there's a teacher, Miriam Cabo, who is a mediator. and She does a ton of work around conflict transformation. 
Um, we had her as a guest on the podcast I do with my sister, how to, how to survive the end of the world last year. And she talks about like the focus has to be on reducing the harm and ending the harm rather than um, pathologizing human beings and saying this person is bad and, and can never be saved. Because I'm like, we're all in the system. There's a ton of us who have been harmed inside the system. There's a ton of responses and distortions to our humanity that have emerged from that. Now it's time to start to reclaim, to say, what do we want to raise up in our children? What do we want every human being to feel that they have access to? And how do we design a world that is centered around what feels good to as many of us as possible? Adrian, you write that your intention is to get the reader to recognize that pleasure is a measure of freedom. How is pleasure mm-hmm. a measure of freedom? You know, I think of it in a very tangible way. Like I think about my own body, my own experience. I'm a black woman. I'm a fat woman. I'm a queer woman. So I've got these sort of three strikes, four strikes <laughs> against me in terms of how am I supposed to access pleasure. I also wear glasses. Okay. So I've got all the things that I'm like, I don't fit into any pornographic images I ever saw. I don't fit into what was ever presented on a magazine as a sexy person or someone desiring, uh, desirable. And then on top of that, we have these weights of oppression that are like, you, um, you're supposed to be in service, right? So the role of a woman in a lot of ways, what I was trained up to do is to please a man, right? Every magazine cover, here's the 30 ways to give the best low job that a man could have. There's no comparative articles that are like, and here's the 30 ways for men that you can actually leave your woman. None of that was what I grew up in, right? And then being black, it's like your role is to be in service. You are an inferior person in this country. And you keep adding to that as a queer person, what the way you want to make love is illegal. It is um, an abom- abomination, right? So you add, add, add all these different oppressions. Then for me to actually wake up in my house have an incredible bath, have an incredible orgasm, love my body and love my life. To me, it's a measure of every single way that I have rejected that socialization, rejected um, the myth of white supremacy, rejected the myth of some norm body that doesn't look like mine, and actually reclaim the truth, which is I'm a miraculous human being and I'm wired for pleasure and I deserve to feel amazing. And when I'm happy, it's good for everyone else. It really is. And so that's one of the, you know, for me, I look at it in my life that way. And then I look at things like the Kumbahi River Statement, which posits the idea that if Black women are free, everyone else would necessarily be free because of structures of this country. And I love that idea that as applied to pleasure, if every Black woman, if every fat woman, if every non-binary person, if every trans person, if every person with a disability, if I knew that all of us had access to total pleasure, to feeling good in our lives, it would mean that our entire society had structured in a way that now abundance was available for all of us. And that's what I'm fighting for. You write that many people are orienting toward and around radical pleasure in this political moment. Why? What about this particular political moment? What about it is leading many people to orient toward radical pleasure? Is this in reaction to <laughs> what we're seeing as like a kind of a, an epidemic of depression? I mean, I think that right now there's a very, um, for me and the communities I'm in, there's a sense of like, we have to hold each other tight through this moment. Um, And I think we have to make sure that we feel good and that we stay connected to what feels good because this is a really horrific time. Having a racist white supremacist president um, who's also um, heavy on misogyny 
in office um, and having an administration that's surrounding and supporting that, having the Republican Party who won't really ever pull themselves away from him, um, being in this political moment and such a shameful moment for the country in terms of what's happening internally, but also how the rest of the world views us. Um, it could be easy to become depressed and to feel like nothing matters or all the work that we've been winning on and making advancements on is being pushed back. And I take great um, inspiration from indigenous communities, right? Because I'm like, well, this time is so hard, but then it's nothing compared to what indigenous communities have had to survive and live through on this land. And one of the interviews I have in the book is with Dallas Goldtooth, who's part of the Indigenous Environmental Network and was a major organizer at Standing Rock. And I interviewed him because all the videos that he was posting throughout that time, he was posting such informative stuff. But he was also posting hilarious videos and pictures of folks sledding and having a great time and showing what the community felt like and that they were actually in a lot of pleasure and joy with each other as they, and that was one of the ways that they were able to sustain themselves through winter in this freezing cold setting. So to me, I'm like, oh, it's, it's actually a fuel. It's a, another kind of nourishment that we need. I also think there's a way that's like our bodies are the thing we have, right? Like everything else will come and go, but our bodies are the space that we have. And so learning how to, how to actually redirect your attention and redirect the experience of your life from feeling crappy and overwhelmed and depressed to feeling content and joyful and satisfied to me is a freedom, right? I don't, tune into what the president is doing and saying all the time. I know most of it is not even true. And I'm experiencing a huge amount of contentment and liberation in my life. And I'm really focused on and supporting movements that are doing work that makes me feel content and satisfied. I love supporting the movement for Black Lives. I love supporting the majority. I love supporting BYP 100. I love that they are in the struggle, on the front lines, but dancing with each other, singing with each other, making Black Joy mixtapes. Like when we make decisions, we put on 90s R&B and we dance together, right? It's like this is an important time to be cultivating Black joy in the face of oppression and remembering that we're not alive to suffer, to fight, to struggle. We're alive to love each other, to build community, to evolve. How can pleasure activism, and I know that you kind of touched on that on this in your last answer, but how can pleasure activism yeah. better prepare us for the changes we're already facing on a warming planet? How can it help us better prepare us for climate change. That's amazing. You know, I, I really think that, um, I don't know about you, but for me, when I really look at the climate report, it's easy to get really overwhelmed. Like, why go on? You know, why continue? And one of the things that inspires me is that I come from a lineage of people who, you know, lived through slavery. They're the people who survived slavery. And four generations into slavery, there was no end in sight. And it felt like this is what it's going to be. There's no reason to hope. And those folks still found love, found marriage, ran away together, you know, raised children together, taught those babies how to read, made sure they laughed. Like, you keep going. You can't actually foresee the whole future. And I think preparing for apocalypse means preparing for deeper intimacy. Like, I think a lot of individualism is what capitalism is all about, is everyone has to have their own. And when everyone has their own, there's actually not enough for everyone right? There starts to be this accumulation of greed. I think the kind of collectivism we need is going to rely on us being able to be in authentic intimacy, right? I have to actually be able to say, Chuck, how are you feeling? And for you to be honest about it. And that requires intimacy. 
for a lot of people, telling the truth about how they feel in, the, in real time is harder than laying down and having sex with someone. And I think the things are so connected. I'm like, what does it mean to get naked? Truly naked. What does it mean to actually be seen? What does it mean to actually say, I want this. I don't want that. Don't touch me like this. I'm triggered right now. This is what's happening, right? And I think there's not enough people right now who can just feel and express their feelings in real time, much less move towards pleasure. But I think that the, the future that I'm thinking of, I'm like, if we're all, even if it's just like, look, we're on the road, you know, <laughs> like we're trying to find water, we're trying to do other stuff. I want to be with people who I can trust to feel their feelings and with people who will crack some jokes and make it a good time. Wow. I really, I really loved your book. We are speaking with social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, emergent strategist, doula, healer, auntie extraordinaire, and pleasure activist, Adrian Marie Brown. She is author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Just a couple more questions for you. And I wanted to reintroduce you there because this is going to be completely off topic from everything else, kind of, that we've been discussing. But I found this fascinating. You write, all organizing is science fiction, that we are shaping the future we long for and have not yet experienced. How is organizing, how is activism viewed differently when we see it as science fiction? Yay! I love this question. Um, Yeah, so a few years ago, Walida E. Marisha and I put out the book Octavia's Brood, and this was one of the core things that we realized as we were pulling it together. It's like, oh, we think of activism as this, like, very serious engagement. You know, you read Marx once a year, you watch Malcolm X, you know, like, you do very serious things, you think serious thoughts, and um, but what's actually happening is this, you know, when you're an activist or an organizer, you're saying, I am going to take responsibility for shaping the future. And when I'm like, oh, well, shaping the future, now you're talking about science fictional behavior. It's answering the question, like, what if this was to happen or if this goes on, what will happen? And to me, it all gets much more exciting when you think we are actually in this imagination battle, that we live inside a world that someone else imagined was going to be correct. They imagined white supremacy was going to be the way they imagine that black people were terrifying. They imagine that women were inferior, but it's all imagination. It's not true. And if we want to have a different world, we have to imagine something else. And I love that the work of organizing actually matters more if it's rooted in vision. So one of the things that I do and one of the things that we have done many times, I actually just came back from doing a series of workshops in Northern Ireland. We do these workshops where we ask people, what is the world that you actually want to, to exist in, that you want to create for future generations, and how will we know when we've achieved that world, when we're actually living in it? And so often the answers to that are not um, everyone will be driving a green car, but it's about how we will feel, that we'll feel free, that we'll feel safe, we'll feel that our children could go out and be in the street, and we know that there's a million people with their eyes on them, loving them, caring for them, not trying to turn them into consumers, but trying to focus on how do they grow and be the best that they can be. And Gloria Anzaldúa is a teacher in our lineage, and she said that nothing happens in the real world unless it first happens in the images in our head. And so a lot of what we're doing with Octavius Brood, a lot of what we're doing with the science fiction and visionary fiction work, you know, really thinking, what are the stories we tell over and over again that reinforce the current power dynamics? What are the new stories we have to tell? If we want to remind people that they're actually born free and that freedom is a given, they're born to feel pleasure, pleasure is a given, we're born to be in community and interdependent. 
individuality is a myth. So <laughs> One last question for you. We've been speaking with author okay. Adrienne Marie Brown. She is the author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. She's also the co-editor of 2015's Octavia's Brood, science fiction from social justice movements and anthology of sci-fi written by organizers and visionaries. You can find out more about Octavia's Brood at octaviasbrood.com. You can follow Adrienne on Twitter at Adrienne Marie, and you can find out more about Adrienne at adriennemariebrown.com. Net. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, <laughs> or our audience might hate your response. And I think that's the category okay. that this might fall in. One of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your book and during your response about science fiction is that science fiction is always seen, uh, not always, but it's often seen as utopian, like in the kind of Star Trek mm-hmm. utopian mm-hmm. world, even though it's militarized for whatever reason, but in the Star Trek yep. utopian world, uh, you know, it's always seen as something that's uh, unreachable. And so often when you think about activism and organization, the activists and organizers are often labeled as being too utopian, being too impractical, not being pragmatic enough. What happens when activism and organizing isn't utopian? You know, I think that we get, um, when it isn't utopian, I find that it's fear-driven. And fear doesn't get us where we want to go. It doesn't liberate us. Fear actually makes us smaller when what we need to be is growing in deep relationship with each other. Fear makes us competitive with each other. And I think once we start competing with each other, this is how we end up with some of what we have in our movements right now, which is everyone is fighting over dollars instead of fighting for freedom. Um, I'm actually in the midst of writing a piece right now about this for those in philanthropy because I'm like, I really want to completely transform how the work of organizing gets funded and how it happens. Um, But one of the things I'll say is if we... You know, when we were writing Octavia's Brood, one of our things was there's never a utopia without a dystopia that's supporting it, right? You don't get heaven without hell. You know, you don't get the, the white tower without a bunch of people who are actually building and supporting and, and working that. It's one of the binaries that we hope to bust out of. How do we create something that's not utopian and it's also not dystopian? but it's a future that is compelling and that we actually want to be a part of and work inside of, right? I always say I'm not really that interested in the utopian version of things because I'm a problem solver. I'm a Virgo oldest child. I like figuring stuff out. But I want to be in a collective or community of people that are like, we all take responsibility for the future. We're all going to figure it out together. That's what I'm up to. Adrian, I really, really enjoyed your book, and I cannot thank you enough for the conversation that we're having this morning. We have been speaking with author and pleasure activist Adrian Marie Brown. She wrote the book, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. You can find out more about uh, Adrienne at her website, adriennemariebrown.net, and you can follow her on Twitter at Adrienne Marie. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Have a really good one. And tell all your folks out there to have a great day. Oh, thank you very much, Adrian. You're listening to the best of This Is Hell, colon, 2019, colon, so far on WNUR. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's recent criticism of U.S.-Israeli relations was 
groundbreaking and has led to a conversation here in the United States about what defines anti-Semitism that I thought I would never, ever hear in the U.S. Here to tell us what Ilhan did right and what she did that was not so right and to go deep into anti-Semitism, Barnaby Rain, a doctoral student at Columbia University in modern European political thought, wrote the Guardian article, Ilhan Omar should be more radical about Israel, not less. Welcome to This Is Hell, Barnaby. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Barnaby also had an article in January at Salvage titled Jewophobia, which you can find at salvage.zone. You can follow Barnaby on Twitter at Barnaby Rain. That's R-A-I-N-E. Although U.S. Congresswoman from Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, a Democrat, made her statements on Israel almost a month ago, let me quickly remind listeners about what she said. The Guardian reported on March 2nd, Omar ignited a bipartisan uproar in Washington and at home in Minnesota last month when she supported on Twitter that members of Congress support Israel for money. Many Jewish leaders denounced her remarks as reviving old stereotypes about Jews, money, and power. Then Vox.com reported on March 6th last week Omar spoke about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on a panel saying, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay to push for allegiance to a foreign country. I want to ask, why is it okay for me to talk about the influence of the National Rifle Association or fossil fuel industries or big pharma and not talk about a powerful lobbying group that is influencing policy? To you, is Congressman Omar questioning the political influence of APAC and allegiance toward one uh, toward more than one state is that a is that a good way to criticize US Israeli relations i'm not asking if it is anti-semitic or not mm. like so many immediately immediately yeah. rush to do but is is it a good is, is it a strong critique in your opinion of US Israeli relations well, I don't think it's the best way to approach the argument. So, look, it's true. Um, it's obviously true that uh, APAC is a lobby. And to say that shouldn't be called a slur because APAC says it on its website. Um, it's obviously true, as lots of former APAC lobbyists have written since Ilan Omar made her comments, that APAC's goal is to influence American policy. Um, I mean, if it weren't, it would be strange that lots of people gave their money to APAC and their time to APAC. Obviously, it's a lobbying organization. But the question here is, do we think that ultimate responsibility for American support for Israel lies with, at a relatively superficial level, right, with a group of people who form a lobbying organization um, and try to distort American policy to their own ends? Or do we think that the problem uh, lies in the interest of the American state itself and that the lobby might be important in pushing it uh, to, to be even worse than it otherwise would, that the American state uh, aligns with Israel um, for exactly the reasons that Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership said in their condemnation of Ilhan Omar. They said, we support Israel because of shared values and strategic interests. And I think that those things should form the basis of the left critique. Uh, we should ask, what are those shared values? What are those strategic interests? Um, so I, you know, I, I, I don't think Ilhan Omar is a... I think Ilhan Omar is fantastic for having opened up this conversation. And I don't want to read too much into a few tweets. Um, but I think that there's an even better way in which we can mount the opposition, which we can sort of articulate the opposition to American-Israeli relations. Well, let me ask the more big kind of dumb general question that everybody seems to be asking right now. Can one be in opposition to Israeli government policies and not be anti-Semitic? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, and it's actually it, 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 it's crucial. To say that because um, there is a there is an extraordinary racism to the denial of that view. 
So when Chuck Schumer tells APAC, then stands up in the U.S. Senate and says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, what he's saying is that for Palestinian people, who were 700,000 of them ethnically cleansed in 1948, driven from their homes, and their descendants now form the biggest refugee population in the world. Many of them still hold the keys from the homes they were forced to flee. When millions of them live under illegal military occupation in the West Bank or under blockade in Gaza or as second and third class citizens in a state that's made abundantly clear it isn't a state for them. Um, what Chuck Schumer says when he says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is to erase entirely the legitimacy of people demanding homes and freedom, the right to live in dignity against the state whose very existence is premised on their dispossession. So anti-Semitism is um, a brand of bigotry that, that we should oppose, and we shouldn't think that opposing it requires us to make a sort of awful, devil choice. And, and often sort of people on both sides think this, right, that we must choose between opposing anti-Semitism and opposing Zionism. Both of those things, I think, are anti-racist obligations. So this isn't just a free speech issue. People should have the right to oppose the policies of the state of Israel. I think those of us who see ourselves as part of a radical left, which is an anti-colonial and anti-racist left, have to oppose anti-Semitism as one of the pathologies and paranoias um, that form part of a sick society. And we also have to oppose Zionism as um, uh, since 1948, it meant lots of different things to Jews in 19th and early 20th century Europe, but since 1948, Zionism tied to the Zionist state has been unavoidably, um, to use the word, uh, criminalized uh, in, in one definition of anti-Semitism. It's been a racist endeavor. It's been uh, a, a project to form a, a, a state in a place that already had lots of other people in it, and that required uh, dispossessing those people. So what does viewing anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism, what might that reveal about a person's religious beliefs? What might, th what might that reveal about the way in which they view Judaism mm. when they see anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism? Well, it's, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, uh, um, I mean look, there is, there is a really genuine problem which is difficult uh, and important to grapple with here, which is that um, claims that anti-Zionism are anti-Semitic might sometimes be cynical, right? So they might sometimes be attempts by supporters of the state of Israel to shut down criticism. But they're often not cynical. They're often uh, genuine, um, especially from Jews, many of whom understand Zionism now as integral to their Jewish identity. I mean, I come from a background in which that was very firmly stressed. And so the interesting, challenging, difficult question is the, the, the work of decoupling um, allegiance to a colonial project from a sense of people's religious and cultural identity, where, where Zionism isn't understood, obviously, as allegiance to a colonial project. It's understood as Jewish national self-determination, as freedom after generations of, of, of oppression and murder culminating in the Holocaust. So understanding that presentation of Zionism for lots of Jews um, shouldn't uh, distract from, shouldn't yeah, take away from the work of uh, of understanding our obligations of solidarity with the Palestinian people, which should mean that we need to hone a politics which is firmly opposed to anti-Semitism and also opposed to Zionism. But I think the view that anti-Zionism uh, is dodgy, um, that, it, that it might be or even is necessarily anti-Semitic, reveals a deep misunderstanding about contemporary anti-Semitism, which really I wrote this article about Ilan Omar, really above all in an attempt to undermine this misunderstanding. So the misunderstanding is, is a view in which anti-Semitism is a problem of excessive radicalism, right? And this is very common now. So um, 
we sometimes hear that some criticism of the state of Israel is, of course, legitimate, but it might spill over into uh, anti-Semitism, as if anti-Semitism is the dark extreme of a more moderate, acceptable criticism of Israel. In Britain, where controversies about anti-Semitism now flare up, a Labour MP, recently member of Parliament, recently said that anti-capitalism is necessarily anti-Semitic, right? So there is this view that anti-elitism forms of radical politics, their, their nasty extreme form is anti-Semitism. That's directly opposed, I think, to a long-standing view of much 20th century analysis from lots of social theorists, especially of anti-Semitism, which implicitly sees anti-Semitism as a, really a form of conservative thinking, in which anti-Semitism's problem is not excessive radicalism, but too limited radicalism. That is to say, anti-Semitism is an attempt to see the inequalities of contemporary societies and to rescue the image of those societies by making those problems the fault of a small clique of outsiders and not... not uh, ingrained in the structure of hierarchical social relations. So if anti-Semitism is a problem of excessive radicalism, then someone like Ilan Omar has to be called out for uh, criticizing the state of Israel, for criticizing U.S. foreign policy. That, the very language of anti-imperialism is tinged with a nasty echo of something like anti-Semitism. If, on the other hand, as I believe, anti-Semitism is a problem of insufficient radicalism, then when someone like Ilan Omar talks about the problem of the Israel lobby, the response should be, yes, absolutely. You know, APAC are, are, uh, do, do lots of dreadful things. But the way to avoid any echoes of anti-Semitism, and I don't think Ilan Omar was being anti-Semitic, but the way to avoid giving any kind of sucker to anti-Semites and it is actually to radicalize and not to moderate the critique, to understand Israel not as a problem of a small number of people in a small part of the world, to, to place Israel instead in its context of bigger histories of settler colonialism that put Israel in conversation with what happened in sub-Saharan Africa and indeed in North America as well. So what's the danger in anti-Semitism giving cover for capitalism or giving cover for Zionism? Sorry, what do you mean? Go on. Sorry, what's the danger in anti-Semitism giving cover for things like capitalism? What's the danger in substituting anti-Semitism for a critique of capitalism? Well, I think um, um, the the basic danger is that... um, I mean, there's two things, right? So obviously one is that in response to experiences of oppression, alienation, exploitation, dispossession, it's always more intuitively easy to identify small numbers of individuals, very, very powerful agents, actors, who are responsible for those ills. Um, And the left should understand that progressive, emancipatory responses to oppression are not the only possible responses. Indeed, I think one way of looking at Trumpism is as a a reactionary response to, uh, from lots of people, to lots of nasty, genuinely nasty experiences. And so the first danger of that is obviously that prejudicial, bigoted responses to oppression have victims who are not themselves the the, the guilty criminals in in forging that oppression. So um, if if people do come to think, and as I say, I don't think this is Ilan Omar's view at all, um, but if, um, uh, if people do come to think, and this is obviously a danger in the United States today, that Jews or Muslims or immigrants uh, or African-Americans are responsible for their suffering, then, of course, the immediate problem of that is that they target Jews or Muslims or immigrants or African-Americans, um, uh, and, and lots of innocent people get, get hurt. And that's the, obviously, first danger of bigotry. But the second danger is that you miss the real cause, uh, and you don't, derive, you don't come up with a form of politics 
that is capable of taking on deeply ingrained problems in your society. Instead, you sort of battle around at the margins. I mean, a good example of this, um, if the left now faces a choice between a, a, a structural um, and fundamental criticism of the violence ingrained in colonial societies versus a much more superficial criticism. A good example to take another lobby is, do we talk about gun violence by saying the problem is the NRA and the problem is a few laws that need to be changed? Or do we talk about gun violence by saying this is a deeply, deeply violent society forged in colonization, in slavery, in napalm, and uh, we need to try to make work out how to make this society a less violent place so that fewer of its kids want to go and shoot up uh, other kids. So I think, you know, which isn't to rule out a conversation about the problem of the NRA, just as talking about Palestinian liberation as a problem of our settler colonial world isn't to rule out a conversation about the problems of APAC, but it's to center the foundational fundamental problems, to foreground those and not to get distracted by the margins. This is why I loved your writing, Barnaby. So uh, just conversely, let's go back to the original question, uh, because you point this out in your writing as well. Uh, Can one be pro-Israel and still be anti-Semitic? Can you be both for the state of Israel and still have hostility or prejudice toward those who practice Judaism? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the basic guide is that um, it's no use taking people's opinions about the state of Israel as simple, easy markers for the question, are they anti-Semitic? Because, of course, you can be opposed to Israeli crimes, uh, either because you don't care at all about Palestinians, but just hate Jews and therefore hate the state of Israel, or perhaps you start by caring about Palestinians and then derive anti-Semitic conclusions. You have an analysis of Israeli crimes which says the problem is that they're Jews, rather than, as I would say, the problem is that this is a settler colonial project and a apartheid project. So you can clearly be opposed to the state of Israel and be anti-Semitic. You can also be opposed to the state of Israel out of a consistent anti-racism, which seeks human freedom and dignity for all, and so marches and mobilizes and organizes against anti-Semitism and against the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people, which is at the heart of the Israeli state. Equally, you can be highly supportive of the state of Israel um, for a whole range of reasons, and of course, some of those can be anti-Semitic reasons. So there's a long tradition of support for the state of Israel on the basis of a kind of separatism, which says we don't really want Jews in Europe, for example. We want them uh, crowded in, in Israel. Um, so there's, a, there's an easy anti-Semitic resonance um, uh, to support for the state of Israel. There's also an evangelical argument that wants all the Jews in Israel so that, uh, that, that their Messiah will come back and perhaps convert us all. I'm not quite sure if that'll be by our choice or not. Uh, and I don't think those people have much regard for the safety and security of Jews and certainly not much interest in the continuation of Jewish faith. Um, so, yeah, clearly you can, you, can, you can be a supporter or an opponent of the state of Israel. You can be an anti-Semite, um, a philo-Semite, someone who sort of fetishizes and adores Jews, which is, to my mind, a little bit dodgy as well, or just a genuine anti-racist. Um, and it's possible to have any constellation of those, any combination of those positions. A lot of people were very critical of Ilhan Omar, saying that her statements were anti-Semitic. Yet you write, the American state needs no conspiracy or blackmail to encourage it to do damage around the world. It is because Omar's worldview can entertain this very possibility, so rarely contemplated in Washington, that Omar represents an enormously hopeful step in national politics. That critical instinct can enable opposition to the American-Israeli alliance and to anti-Semitism, too. I know that you've already touched on this, but I want to make sure that people understand how Ilhan Omar's uh, comments can lead to a discussion about anti-Semitism. It can actually lead to anti-Semitism, how her her position can actually lead to anti-Semitism, or ending anti-Semitism. In what way can Ilhan Omar's criticism of U.S.-Israeli relations motivate opposition 
to anti-Semitism? Fantastic question. So um, I, I think, and this is why, uh, if I could pick one member of the U.S. Congress and make them president tomorrow, uh, it would probably be Ilan Omar. Uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, she understands, the, I think, the massive threat of climate change more than most politicians. But the, the basic reason is because she represents this enormously hopeful step um, in terms of opening the door to an argument that the United States of America is not, as I think most people in Washington believe, the solution to many of the world's problems, but is in fact the cause of lots of the world's problems. And the willingness to entertain that possibility that the problem uh, isn't superficial, it's not just uh, a, a mistake of the Trump presidency or the Bush presidency or a few lobbyists. It's a problem that goes back uh, probably to the arrival of Christopher Columbus on these shores. Um, that willingness, I think, is enormously hopeful and allows us to get beyond conspiratorial forms of politics to a much more progressive form of politics. So the way I put it is this. I think there are two paths open to the left right now, uh, a kind of embryonic, nascent, new, new American left. There are two paths open to it in thinking, in informing its foreign policy. And this is why this question matters, right? Um, we can think of um, tragedies and injustices as failures to live up to the initial glory of the American promise. Or we can analyze those tragedies and injustices as symptoms, as products of uh, an original violence, uh, a set of sins and pathologies deeply rooted in this country's history. And that's a choice between celebrating America and a critique of America that has often been posed by freedom struggle, that was posed by the black freedom struggle in the 1960s, for example. And Ilan Omar interests me so much because I think she represents some of that choice. So on the one hand, and you saw this just after I wrote the article and said I'm optimistic about her, she questioned Elliot Abrams in Congress, uh, Trump's sort of Venezuela uh, coup-mongering official. And she didn't question him as the corrupt henchman of a corrupt president, uh, the symbol that everything's gone wrong in America since November 2016. No, she brought him back to the 1980s, and she asked him whether the interests of the United States of America could prefer genocide to democracy. That's the most shocking question, I think, to ask in the halls of power in Washington. It won't shock many people in Central and South America, for whom the answer to that question is, is pretty obvious. The interests of the United States of America have often been militantly opposed to democracy. So she has opened the door to that kind of radicalism. On the other hand, you also see, under immense pressure, of course, as a member of Congress, a much more conservative argument. So you also see her saying that America is a home of democracy and opportunity, and that her criticism of Israel doesn't make her anti-American, that she's opposed to a foreign power um, and, and not to America itself. And so uh, I'm, not say, I'm not trying to sort of deduce from a few tweets a coherent worldview. I'm trying to say there are some tensions at work here, and it's the radical side of Ilan Omar, which doesn't represent a dangerous threat, as lots of critics assume, but which in fact represents the possibility of overcoming um, forms of bigoted politics and instead giving us a much more gorgeous and noble tradition of solidarity, universalism, anti-racism that can link um, opposition to the continuing dispossession of Native Americans, the carceral state, and uh, the, the, the racist persecution of African Americans to the struggle of Palestinians against their dispossession. Uh, it doesn't see these problems as, as radically separate. You mentioned two conflations in Zionism and anti-Semitism in your article, Jewophobia, that was at Salvage, and you can find that at salvage.zone. You write, the first connects identity to race to blood, and so reads Semitism as the intrinsic condition of a minority, permanently and inaccessible to the rest. Quite aside from anything else, this has nothing to do with Judaism, which has, since the since 
Maimonides, I knew I was going to get that wrong, indeed since Ruth, understood uh, itself as a set of social practices constituting an open peoplehood into which converts can enter. So is anti-Semitism racism? Um, uh, It's a complicated question, uh, partly because I think making anti-Semitism only racism against Jews um, misses much of its broader uh, problem, which is that it's a brand of conspiratorial thinking, um, a way of misidentifying problems in the social structure and thinking they belong to a tiny elite, which is a kind of conspiratorial sort of meme that you see, for example, I think in the way that Democrats talk about Russia now, which isn't to say they're being anti-Semitic, but they're deploying similar kinds of thinking, which is to say uh, the election of Donald Trump isn't really about deep problems in the American social structure. It's about a few tweets from the Kremlin. Um, So I think there's a big uh, method of political, sort of way of doing political thought in, in, in anti-Semitism, which you don't get if you just think it's just racism and it just happens to be targeted at Jews. Um, so that's the first thing. But I think you're asking about this question of whether Jews are a race. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Because I'm trying to d- determine if anti-Semitism is racism. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, so I think for all practical purposes, uh, sort of in everyday political discussion, it's, it's sort of fine to say yes. I mean, um, uh, J- Judaism clearly is not like, say, Christianity in the sense of just understanding itself as a religious faith. There are lots and lots of Jews who are, I mean, you know, the way that, 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 that Hitler understood being Jewish was simply having one Jewish grandparent. One of the distinctive features of modern anti-Semitism is that it makes being Jewish into a racial type where Christian medieval anti-Semitism understood Judaism as a religion and Jews were hated above all that and killed Christ in the medieval anti-Semitic understanding or anti-Jewish understanding. Um, anti-Semitism, with its construction of Jews as Semites, as, uh, you know, what it means to be a Semite is to be uh, liminally related to Europe, to be an, an Oriental, to be almost an Arab. This is a moment in the 19th century of lurid Islamophobia. Um, modern anti-Semitism constructs Jews as foreign to Europe as a racial uh, type. Um, so certainly in the view of much modern late 19th and 20th century anti-Semitism, Jews are understood as a race and hated for being a race. I think things are more complicated. You know, there's a, there's a wide array of different kinds of what I call Jewophobia to say they're not all covered by anti-Semitism. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly I think understanding Jews as a race is common to some Jews uh, who are, don't believe in God maybe, or don't even have much attachment to Jewish culture, but understand themselves as, as part of a racial group. And it's also common certainly uh, to lots of anti-Semites. So, you mentioned, and I teased at the beginning of uh, the show today, uh, that you write about anti-anti-Semitism. What is anti-anti-Semitism, and why can that be dangerous? Well, it's, I mean, you know, we should all be anti-anti-Semites in the sense that we should all be opposed to anti-Semitism. Um, what I'm interested in is this thing I call the new anti-anti-Semitism, which is a slightly yeah, jokey term because... The, the, I'm talking about people who, who uh, describe what they call a new anti-Semitism. And, um, and I kind of, I mean, I hinted at this earlier in talking about different ways to think about um, bigotry against Jews. I think the new anti-anti-Semitism is a view which understands the hatred of Jews as the nasty extreme of anti-elitist politics, of antagonistic politics. And that's why I think it resurges as a moral panic amid concern about the decline of neoliberal technocracy, the return of uh, genuine confrontational politics. Um, the dark side, Tony Blair sort of put it this way the other day, it's the, it's the predictable face of what he calls populism. Um, 
that I think is not especially useful as a way of understanding um, bigotry. Um, and so the new anti-anti-Semites see often in the shadow of all radicalism the potential for anti-Semitism. I mean, they saw it in opposition to the Iraq war. Um, I was going to say a decade ago. It's more than that now, isn't it? 16 years ago. Um, they saw it in, uh, they see it in, in, for example, the movement for boycotts, divestment and sanctions against the state of Israel, which should be seen as, as potentially one of the sort of best anti-racist causes of our age. Uh, and as I say, they see it too in, in anti-capitalism. I mean, um, the most extraordinary article in the British press a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, um, pointed to Jeremy Corbyn's plan to raise taxes against the rich as evidence of his anti-Semitism. Now, I think part of the problem with this new anti-anti-Semitism is that it can seem at times that it buys into, it internalizes the anti-Semitic image of Jews. There's an old Yiddish joke, the philo-Semite is the anti-Semite who loves Jews, that you take a picture of the Jew as rich, powerful, um, omnipresent, uh, you know, the image of Rothschild in the past or Soros now, and you really think that that is a representative of what Jews are, and you just find new love for Jews on that basis. You love people who are rich and powerful and, and whatever. And so you haven't actually moved away from this pretty nasty, uh, pretty awful uh, racial, cultural imagery of the world in which Jews mean power. Um, and I think there's the shadow of that in some of this new anti-anti-Semitism, which sees all radicalism as potentially anti-Semitic. And I don't think that's the way to talk about the problem at all. I think it's a, there's a moral panic about anti-Semitism today. I also think there's a real resurgence of anti-Semitism today um, for quite different reasons. And you don't understand those reasons if you think that all radicalism is anti-Semitic. So why is there a surge in anti-Semitism today? Why aren't, you know, people like Steven Pinker and Bill Gates, they all say that things are always getting better, that we're always being less racist, that we're always being less anti-Semitic, that we're uh, always being better off, that poverty is going away, that things are always getting better. So to you, what explains why there is a resurgence in anti-Semitism uh, in Europe and in the United States? Uh, I think it's the, I think we live at the confluence of three conditions. I think, firstly, we live after the end of history, right? So um, uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, some people would say, I think it goes back further than that, to the sort of counter-revolutions against 1968, against the advances of the labor movement and feminism and anti-colonial struggle. Um, we live in a period in which, at the end of history, in which we were told that systematic social transformation had become impossible and market capitalist democracy was the only game in town. We live also after 2008, um, in which um, that model seems to very many people to have floundered. And we live also in a world deeply shaped by 9-11, in which after the end of history, after all antagonistic politics seemed impossible, people were told again, rediscovered that it was possible to hate. It was possible to have antagonistic politics, not along social, political lines, but along cultural lines, right? You could hate those who were backwards, who were, who were different to you culturally. Um, this is the sort of foundational logic of, of the war on terror. So you take those three things together, right? The end of history, you can't change the whole world anymore. Storming the Winter Palace is impossible. Um, abolishing capitalism is obviously impossible. But it is possible to uh, hate people along cultural lines, to form your antagonistic politics along cultural lines. And then you take 2008 and the, the, the demand for a reappearance of anti-elitist class politics after the, 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 the mass foreclosures and redundancies and recession and unemployment. And I think that provides a toxic mix 
in which the perfect way to understand your anti-elitism is not to say there's a structure, uh, a deeply ingrained system which produces finance capital, um, and it's a system of, of, of commodity exchange and of capitalism. Instead, it's much easier to pick on George Soros. So this is the demons unleashed by the war on terror, in my view, um, demons of hating others and uh, making your problems the, the fault of, an, of small conspiracies of others who hate your way of life. That's the demon of the war on terror, and those demons are now coming back home uh, to, to roost against uh, European civilization and, and, and targeting not the structure of that civilization itself, but a small number of, of conspirators. So, you know, supposed conspirators like George Soros. So you can see on this view how the resurgence of geophobia, of what's called anti-Semitism, is not a problem of excessive radicalism. It is, to get back to my earlier point, a problem of insufficient radicalism, the inability to imagine genuine social transformation. You can't really imagine getting rid of the swamp, so you just want to drain the swamp by sending a billionaire there uh, in the hope that he'll be a bit better than the other billionaires. You can't really imagine um, getting rid of capitalist social relations, but you can target George Soros and Goldman Sachs and say they're the problem. Uh, it's, a, it's an overly superficial analysis. It's not a too fundamental analysis. That's, it's too moderate, not too radical. That's a fascinating idea that the war on terror exacerbates uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, you write about the uh, about the Zionism as uh, manifestly failed to keep Jews safe, to combat anti-Semitism. Its failure is predictable, given its whole edifice relies on instantiating the Jew-Gentile binary uh, imagined by anti-Semites. It feeds hatreds, freezes them, needs them. Are you saying that Israel feeds anti-Semitism? Because I know I'm going to get a lot of emails saying that you blame Israel for anti-Semitism. So are you saying that the state of Israel, its actual existence, feeds anti-Semitism? Well, I, I'm saying it relies on anti-Semitism. And um, I obviously don't think that Israel creates anti-Semitism. I mean, that would be historically bizarre, because obviously anti-Semitism long, long, long precedes right. the state of Israel. Um, I think that, um, uh, look, Zionism was never... Um, um, the, the, the sort of uh, yeah, Zionism was never a plan to transcend anti-Semitism. It was never an optimistic view that we could fight an anti-racist struggle to rid the world of anti-Semitism. Zionism was instead the deeply pessimistic view that we would always live in a world of anti-Semitism, and so we just need a fortress to protect us when inevitably the camps reopen. Um, that is, that is, I think, absolutely the logic of Zionism. Um, and it, that's why it's understandable that it was attractive to so many in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, when optimism, uh, the optimism that had motivated lots of socialists in 1930s Poland seemed to have run aground. Um, today, I think we can say that uh, Zionism uh, entrenches a view, this, this, this culturalism that I'm saying is the foundational problem here, in which Jews have certain interests by virtue of being Jews, Gentiles have different interests by virtue of being Gentiles, and in the paranoid logic of much Zionism, there is an intractable opposition between those things. So it's no surprise that Palestinians hate us. They don't hate us because we've colonized, dispossessed, forced them into exile, maimed and killed them. They hate us because everyone will always hate Jews because they're not Jews, and that's the history of human civilization, the oldest hatred in this sort of very anti-historical um, essentializing view of anti-Semitism is always with us, and that's why we need a garrison state. Um, that view fails to escape from this miserable logic in which human beings are read as ciphers for cultures and races who have certain interests by virtue of belonging to those cultures and races. The way to bring about a world after anti-Semitism, the way properly to defeat anti-Semitism, is not to further entrench its logic by bunkering down in these binaries, um, I 
uh, have certain interests because I'm a Jew and therefore I'll always be opposed to you because you're an Arab. The way to defeat the logic of anti-Semitism is to refuse it, to say um, the real dividing lines that separate us in the world are between those who are interested in the maintenance of power and oppression and alienation exploitation and those who seek a world of human freedom universally, free of structures of domination. I have so many questions left for you, but we are running out of time. So let me just ask you a couple real quick. One of the uh, things that you mentioned is uh, you write that the uh, conversation linking anti-Semitism to familiar racism also links it to other forms of antagonistic conservative politics like homophobia and fear of Freemasons. All read culture as the ultimate foundation of politics, which gets the relationship precisely the wrong way around. Is the foundation of the problem with the anti-Semitic worldview that it sees culture as the ultimate foundation of politics when, as you argue, politics is in reality the ultimate foundation of culture? Why is that difference so important? How does it make one view the world differently? Yeah, that, that, that is absolutely the crucial question. I mean, because, you know, I've talked about anti-Semitism as insufficient radicalism, which thinks that small numbers of individuals are, prob- are, are responsible for the world's problems, not big social structures. I disagree, though, with one view of anti-Semitism um, on the left, people like Moshe Stone, uh, Werner Bonefeld, um, who, who sort of stop there, right? Who say anti-Semitism is that form of anti-capitalism, which doesn't understand the structural problems of, of capitalism. I think it's a useful, very, very useful starting point, but it misses out the crucial centrality of culture. Anti-Semitism doesn't just say a small number of individuals are responsible for your problems. It says the reason they're responsible for your problems is because of their race or their culture or their ethnicity. Um, it's because of those facts about their existence. And yes, I think this is a crucial, crucial difference, which clarifies why the radical left is in the best position to fight anti-Semitism. Because especially in this age of the war on terror, it's only really the radical left that refuses a view that we have certain interests, political interests, by virtue of our essential intractable cultures. It's only really the radical left that is capable of saying, and, you know, I mentioned the black freedom struggle earlier as an amazing moment in American history where, uh, in the 20th century, where this was made possible. People like James Baldwin were the sort of most articulate exponents of this view, that it's possible to disentangle people's deep imbrication in violence and nastiness and oppression that, for example, marks white America, because those things aren't in the blood of white America. They're the product of politics. They're the product of experiences of colonization and power and slavery. Um, And we can take those apart, those cultures, if we take apart the politics that produce them and replace them with a politics of freedom and equality uh, and respect for one another. So um, so the the, the basic difference between the anti-Semitic worldview and the worldview of the radical left that is properly understood, the radical left, is that in the view of the anti-Semitic worldview, just like in the view of those who launched the war on terror, for example, though frequently, you know, those who launched the war on terror march in Paris against anti-Semitism, the, the sort of core similarity is a view that, um, that there are cultural conflicts in the world. We are born, or perhaps we acquire at some point in life, but they are practically ineradicable cultures. And those cultures then determine how we behave. Um, uh, culture is extremely powerful, but the hope of the radical left is that uh, even very violent and nasty cultures can be torn down um, because uh, the basic division in the world is not between people who are Jewish or Gentile, people who are Afghan and American, um, but between uh, people who have power and people who don't. So you mentioned this in your article, and I just want you to make, uh, wanted to make sure that you would uh, talk about it on today's show. Why do you believe Semitic cosmopolitanism? can overcome anti-Semitism better than Zionism? 
Yeah, well, so, uh, yeah, it ties into what we've been talking about. Um, so um, what I said is often on the left, it's been assumed that the answer to anti-Semitism is a kind of assimilationism, which says, let's just flatten all our differences. And rejecting, or I'll say cultural differences, rejecting culturalism, political culturalism, means rejecting a view that our cultural uh, commitments, our cultural particularities, need to determine our politics and need, need forge lines of political antagonism so that my culture makes me opposed to you because you have a different culture. Um, I like hamburgers and French fries. You like, I don't know, kebabs, and so that puts us in opposition to each other. Um, Semitic cosmopolitanism, what I, this sort of maybe slightly clunky term that I coined in the article, is just to say um, there's something really gorgeous and valuable about some of the, many of the cultural traditions uh, that went into the making, the construction of modern Jewry. Um, that Semitism, this thing that anti-Semites hate, was in the late 19th century understood as the condition of being on the margins of Europe, this sort of border condition of not fully fitting within European society, uh, taking much of its beauties and contributing many of its beauties. You know, it was Karl Marx who once wrote, if Jews are an eyesore, they're the most incredible, wonderful eyesore to have um, for European society, um, contributing many of its beauties, but never being fully a part of it, always existing on its margins. That tradition, that anti-Semitic way of understanding uh, uh, Jews, I think should be embraced as an opening for solidarity among lots of other people at the borders of Europe. Um, it may not be how lots of it isn't how lots of Jews understand Judaism today, but it's deeply written into traditions of exile and um, and oppression that, that we say in the in the Seder service at the start of Passover that, that we shouldn't mistreat strangers for we were once strangers in others' land. That tradition of solidarity of taking from our particular experience of persecution and generalizing from it, not the defensive paranoid reaction that says, I've been persecuted, so I must defend myself, but I've been persecuted, so I understand others who are persecuted. This is a very, very long-standing Jewish tradition. The great Isaac Deutscher, in his essay, The Non-Jewish Jew, writes about this as a, as a great Jewish tradition. The Jewish left has for centuries embodied this tradition. Universalism that emerges out of the particular, um, which I think goes back even to Jewish theology and to the view that the chosen people are not a master race, but have a vocation, an obligation to bring a about the Messiah, to bring about universal salvation. Now, whether you believe for everyone in the world, now, whether you believe in God and in, the, in Jewish theology or not, I think there's a very, very gorgeous political tradition there. So this is to say, you don't have to be a political culturalist. You don't have to say, I'm a Jew, and therefore I'm only loyal to other Jews, uh, which I think is the dreadful mistake of, of, of ultimately of Zionism. You can, but you don't have to reject culture either and say, we must all assimilate and be the same. You can say, look, in Jewish tradition, there's this wonderful particular tradition that we can take. Semitic tradition and use it to forge a brand of cosmopolitanism, a way of living together uh, while adoring the very, very different cultures and traditions that different people have and drawing from them um, uh, different good things that can help us to, to live together. We have been speaking with Barnaby Rain. He is a doctoral student at Columbia University in modern European, modern European political thought. He wrote the Guardian article, Ilhan Omar should be more radical about Israel, not less. He also had an article in uh, January at Salvage titled Jewophobia, which you can find at salvage.zone. And I strongly suggest you check out both of these articles. Jewophobia is really, really amazing. Follow Barnaby on Twitter at Barnaby Rain. That's R-A-I-N-E. One last question for you, Barnaby. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, accusing others of anti-Semitism serves the same social function as anti-Semitism itself. Namely, it diverts attention from the sickness within Christian civilization. What is the sickness within Christian civilization? 
Oh, fantastic. Uh, one of the most enormous differences between the new anti-antisemitism and traditions of analyzing anti-Semitism in the, 20, in the 19th and 20th century, critical analyses of anti-Semitism, is that those old traditions began from the premise that anti-Semitism was uh, created by the civilization in which it was nested, um, that there were various features of this civilization which produced pathologies, sicknesses like anti-Semitism, manias, ways of misunderstanding the social world. The new anti-Semitism, on the other hand, makes anti-Semitism the sickness of others, the barbarians, the anti-Zionists, the Muslims, whoever it is, the anti-capitalists, um, their hatred for our civilization is why they are anti-Semitic. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's what I meant. So it's to say, um, you know, if you're Donald Trump, I mean, this is the, it's reached, we're through the looking glass now. I mean, it's reached the laughable irony where Kevin McCarthy, uh, GOP uh, majority leader, can, um, uh, can send out a tweet shortly after a bomb is sent to George Soros' house, a sort of anti-Semitic tweet about George Soros, and then he can get on his high horse and condemn Ilan Omar when Trump, um, who initially refuses to denounce David Duke, can condemn Ilan Omar for her purported racism. That is really the comical extreme of this point I'm making. It's become so unsubtle, so in your face now, that um, treating anti-Semitism as the problem of barbarian others um, it's no coincidence that Ilan Omar is a Muslim woman and is being, uh, this allegation is being launched against her. Um, it is really uh, a, an awfully retrograde move. And the left certainly used to understand, and I hope still does, that anti-Semitism is a problem uh, produced by uh, the horrors of the society in which we live. Barnaby, external to it. I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This is a fascinating conversation. Your writing is amazing. And again, I just want to stress to everybody, they should definitely check out. Sure, check out that you're writing at The Guardian about Ilhan Omar, but your longer writing, uh, Jewophobia, that was at Salvage this, or in January, really is amazing. So thank you so much for being on our show and uh, look forward to us bothering you in the future to having you back on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been All great. Right, take care. You're listening to the best of This Is Hell, colon, 2019, colon, so far, on WNUR. One corporation embodies all the diseases that currently infect 21st century capitalism, and that virus may have led to the deaths of nearly 350 people in Boeing 737 MAX 8 airliners. Here to help us look at the big picture of what's wrong with capitalism by focusing on what's wrong with Chicago-based Boeing, market practitioner and analyst Marshall Auerbach wrote the Salon.com article, Boeing Might Represent the Greatest Indictment of 21st Century Capitalism, which was produced by Economy for All, a project of the Independent Media Institute. You can find the article at Salon.com, and you can find out more about Economy for All at Independent Media MediaInstitute.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Marshall. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, good morning, and thanks for having me. You can follow Marshall on Twitter at M Auerbach. That's M A U E R B A C K. You write Boeing has a totally unsustainable business model, one that has persistently ignored the risks of excessive offshoring, the pitfalls of divorcing engineering from basic R&D function, the perils of demodularization, and the perverse incentives of shareholder capitalism, whereby basic safety concerns have repeatedly been sacrificed at the altar of greed. How is Boeing both unsustainable, as you describe it, and at the same time, the world's largest aerospace company and leading manufacturer of commercial jetliners, defense, space, and security systems, and service provider of aftermarket support. How can it be both unsustainable and the market leader in its field? 
Well, uh, to answer your second uh, question first, um, it was once a very successful uh, company. Uh, you know, it, it was known as the Queen of the Skies in the uh, in the in the golden age of uh, global aviation. Uh, by the way, it, it was uh, largely uh, Seattle or based at that time and had a largely unionized workforce. Um, so that may be more than coincidental. But but it, it was a, a strongly well-run company. The reason it still exists today, in, in, in spite of the uh, pathologies I described, is because there's there's essentially only one other co- bit of competition, and that's Airbus in, in Europe. So you have a duopoly, and um, it's really a bit of a market failure because, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, consumers don't have an alternative available to them other than those two airlines, in spite of the fact that, um, as you pointed out, um, they, they keep uh, producing increasingly lousy airlines, not just the 737, but uh, the, the Dreamliner, uh, the 787, is also um, has also been characterized by lots of problems since its uh, introduction about a decade ago. Does that does it, the fact that there is a duopoly, as you describe it, does that contribute to the pathologies that you see occurring within Boeing when it comes to 21st century capitalism? Does that duopoly cause the situation that leads to the pathologies that you see? Well, not necessarily. I, it, it simply means that there's not a lot of available choice out there. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, break it up because it's a, it's a duopoly. The problem comes from the fact that, um, as you say, they've started to offshore a lot of their uh, production, and, and, and they were warned against doing this by as early as 2001 uh, by one of their former engineers, because um, you need to have a, a relatively cohesive industrial ecosystem. You need to have the engineers and the R&D uh, people working closely together so that you can um, stress test and, 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 um, and catch problems early. That, that, that's a very important consideration. But when you're, when you're making... Um, um, one uh, piece of equipment in, in in Japan and another in Italy, that becomes harder to do. That that's the problem of uh, demodularization, which is, was described in a Harvard Business Review piece a, a few years ago. And the other problem is that um, Boeing is now not just a, a civilian aircraft manufacturer, but it's also doing a lot of work for the Pentagon, and that in itself is problematic because uh, the the two. Uh, sectors have different um, cultures. Instead of working towards uh, being uh, efficient and cutting costs, as you normally do in a civilian uh, company, uh, the the military works on a cost-plus basis. So what they basically say to a company like Boeing is, um, we'll give you um, uh, your cost-plus, say, 15%. uh, There's a a fixed margin. So that uh, is not only uh, terrible for the taxpayer, it's also the company, because it actually gives a perverse incentive to Boeing to expand and be as wasteful as possible because they can fatten their margins that way. And that's one problem. And the second is that um, it's, it's what um, a long-time uh, uh, employees at the Pentagon, Chuck Spinney and Pierre Spray, called political engineering, which is that you, know, you have an increasingly expensive military boondoggle. It wastes money, but um, you you ensure that it never gets the, the, the plug is never pulled because you you put as many uh, operations in as many states as possible, which is highly inefficient. But when it comes to um, Congress saying uh, you're wasting money, we're going to cut back your budget. Um, you know, Boeing just has to go to one of their uh, uh, friendly congressmen and say, well, okay, well, um, you know, we'll we'll be cutting um, jobs in in your particular uh, district, and um, they thereby rally uh, political support, which keeps the wastefulness going. Um, and also makes it impossible to uh, to cut back the spending. Would 
nationalizing uh, military spending, defense spending, would that end the private-public clash? Would that end the political engineering that you see that caused so much problems with the uh, military-industrial congressional complex? You know, I don't. I don't really know because I. I. I think that you know this is a problem. Obviously, the, the military-industrial complex is a problem that we, you know, we we've been warned about since uh, you know Eisenhower's famous uh, final speech in 1960. But uh, and and I think unfortunately uh, the military has got its tentacles now tied into so many different uh, aspects of, of of government that nationalizing it, I don't think would 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 solve the problem. I I think you would need to have really whole-scale uh, political, institutional political reforms were implemented before you could do anything about it. And, and, and the other point I would bear in mind is that, you know, and Matt Taibbi, amongst others, has been very good at pointing this out, the, the, the budgeting process for the Pentagon is a, is a complete mess. Uh, that they, they, When they've audit, tried to audit um, uh, the, um, the the Department of Defense, it's, it's just turned up one nightmare after another. And it's, this has been going on, again, for, for decades and those who have been whistleblowers within the Pentagon have usually been ostracized and so um, and, and shut down. So, so the problem never gets fixed. If Boeing's problems are caused by the perverse incentives of shareholder capitalism, as you call it, whereby basic safety concerns have repeatedly been sacrificed at the altar of greed, are the nearly 750 deaths in the recent 737 MAX 8 crashes on the hands of the individual shareholders themselves, even if they are shareholders who may be unaware that they own Boeing stock and discover they do within some mutual fund or other bundled investment? Are these crashes not Boeing's fault, but the fault of shareholder capitalism, which is imposed upon Boeing and is out of their control? Therefore, it's the shareholder's fault? Well, you know, it's an interesting way to look at the problem because, on the one hand, the, the, the basis of shareholder capitalism, which was initially enunciated by Milton Friedman, is that they're the owners of the company, the shareholders, and uh, therefore you should always be directing your operations to maximize their returns as opposed to, say, employee welfare or, or making a safe, reliable plane. And yet, as you pointed out, if that's true, logically, they should be the ones to be held accountable. But of course, they would um, rightly say, well, we don't really know the ins and the outs of, uh, of the operations of, uh, the, of the air aviation industry, and we don't really have the engineering expertise, which, which I think highlights the, the stupid premise of shareholder capitalism. I mean, I, I was once a, a fund manager, and you know, I was a, you know, the, the classic jack of all trades, master of none. You know, you, you learn a little bit about a lot of different industries, but, but there is no way I would be able to advise someone with 30 years experience in the, the aero in, in the aviation industry of how to um, build a, a proper plane and yet that's the silly premise underlying uh, shareholder capitalism and the other the other problem is that um, increasingly executive pay and not just in Boeing but this is a, a problem that is pervasive in American capitalism right now the the the, the incentives uh, are uh, towards higher pay are largely uh, linked to the performance of the the stock price, as opposed to the underlying operations of the company itself. So you could have a, a, a company that has been has been degraded for years, but through forms of financial engineering, is actually uh, performing well. It consistently beats its quarterly uh, earnings per share number. The the Wall Street uh, supporters um, jump on it and and, and push the stock up, and, and everything looks great. I mean the, the uh, General Electric under Jack Welch um, was a classic illustration of this. Uh, but Boeing is is merely the uh, the, the, the next in a, in a long line of companies that that pulls this kind of stuff. So 
what I'm saying is that you need to change the incentives. You have to make um, um, executive compensation predicated on on the um, the airline uh, how it, the airline itself uh, actually uh, performs, as opposed to um, how the stock price performs. And and I, I do also incidentally think that many of the uh, executives who were res- who were responsible for these decisions should be tried on manslaughter tri- charges. You describe how the veteran commercial pilot and software engineer George Travis's article, how the Boeing 737 MAX disaster looks to a software developer, design shortcuts meant to make a new plane seem like an old one, old familiar one, are to blame, which was posted at the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers website Spectrum, is a devastating takedown of a company that once represented the apex of civilian aviation, whose dominance has been steadily eroded as it has increased its toxic ties to the U.S. military. Is there a lesson in Boeing's relationship with the military, a warning to other corporations who may want to get in on the military-industrial congressional complex? Is it is it not as good a gig as we might think it is? Yeah. Uh, Gregory Travis, uh, I've, I've spoken to him many times, and we've actually co-authored another piece on this uh, um, the the uh, the preliminary report that's come out uh, it's, it's available publicly right now is is it's pretty damning but but yeah I, I think uh, the the military uh, seduces because you know it's a ready made market it never seems to shrink and uh, they're offering a guaranteed margin but as I said uh, it, it 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 is inherently corrupting and and also um, it's it's very problematic from a society's point of view that that you know, you you don't want um, um, America's most talented engineers, software designers, etc., working uh, for in, enhancing uh, the, the military. You'd rather have them deployed productively in the civilian economy. So, it not only engenders sloppy working practices uh, within a, a hitherto civilian company, but it, it, it just draws more and more people towards military, and, and, and therefore misallocates uh, resources in a highly destructive way. So it, it, there, there are many warning signs, and, and I think it's, it's really literally a Palestinian bargain if um, a company decides it wants to get in bed with uh, the Pentagon. You also point out that Travis largely restricts his analysis to the 737, but his article illustrates pathologies long evident at Boeing and the FAA. We already touched a little bit on the relationship between Boeing and the Pentagon. How would you describe the relationship between Boeing and the FAA? Well, that's an, uh, an equally instructive uh, uh, story, um, and because it's, it, in many respects it has parallels to the 2008 financial crash. And um, The FAA is increasingly subject to what we might call regulatory capture, which is to say that, um, you know, it's a bit like the uh, the, the criminals looking after the, the, the jails as opposed to the uh, management. It's it's the, the expertise of the Federal Aviation Authority has been uh, increasingly diminished. Uh, they um, they get offered more money in the, in the private sector, and increasingly their ability to um, oversee uh, the, the industry for which they're responsible has been compromised. And in, in, because of that, uh, the FAA has gone to Boeing and said, look, we don't really understand what's going on here. Why don't you help us? Uh, why don't you effectively self-certify the planes? In other words, you, you tell us um, what, when, when it's safe and uh, we'll bet it. And that, that's essentially what's happened with the 737. But it's also happened um, in regard to the, the 787 Dreamliner. So it's, it's another case where you have a very, very complex engineering problem 
the uh, relevant regulatory body doesn't have the ability to oversee it properly, so they effectively subcontract that um, uh, pro- that uh, decision making to the company itself, and that's just a recipe for disaster. So why isn't there any cultural blowback, political blowback, from this kind of self-regulation and oversight that we see that has failed uh, the people who are flying in the Max uh, 737 Max 8s, but as you point out, failed with uh, the Wall Street collapse back in the financial collapse back in 2008? What, ex- what explains to you, why is it that we are not backing off from this idea of self-regulation and oversight if it has failed so in deadly ways a few times? Well, there's, uh, the, the, the short answer is money. Um, uh, we saw this after 2008. Uh, within months of getting bailouts uh, from uh, uh, the, the government, uh, Wall Street started to use some of that money to aggressively lobby against the kinds of regulatory changes that would have tightened things up considerably. And uh, they effectively succeeded in, in gutting uh, Dodd-Frank, which was a fairly minimal bit of, of, of uh, regulation and legislation to begin with. The other point is that um, with, with regard to Wall Street, it's very hard for people to understand um, what a toxic derivative might do in terms of um, um, blowing up our financial system. Uh, a plane crash, on the other hand, is something that people intuitively understand. And as the magnitude of these problems with the FAA and Boeing, uh, the incestuous linkages become more readily apparent, as I think they are in current congressional hearings, I think the political pressure will um, be uh, to for the FAA to change uh, many of its practices. Whether that extends to other industries, I doubt. I suspect you'll need another type of crash uh, uh, before um, we start looking at the the broader implications of, of the kind of regulatory system we've we've adopted over the last uh, several decades. You write Boeing's failures resonate with the public in a way that no complicated financial fraud possibly could. It takes a certain level of, as you're saying, technical expertise to understand how the toxicity of financial derivative poses dangers to an economic system. But everybody instinctively understands the tragic impact of a plane crash like the doomed Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines 737-related accidents. Financial fraud's complexities, far-reaching effects make it difficult to find those responsible and hold them accountable. It can even lead to blaming the victims for their own involvement within the financial system that is later proven to be fraudulent, or a universalizing of blame by contending anyone who has any investment in the financial markets touched by fraud is also complicit, thus diffusing that blame again. Is it any more or less difficult to hold the airline industry and its executives accountable and responsible for their shortcomings than it is the financial industry? Is it any easier to charge Boeing executives with manslaughter than it is to charge Wall Street executives for fraud? Well, I I think it's easier in the sense that it's probably easier to establish a clear nexus, as you said, uh, uh, and as I wrote, uh, a plane crash is something people instinctively understand. But I would argue that even in regard to Wall Street, um, you know, Congress really dropped the ball. Um, my friend Bill Black, who is, who is a, a professor of criminology and, and uh, an economist who's looked at this, uh, um, has pointed out, and, and as have many others, that, you know, the, 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 the Wall Street uh, ensured uh, that, um, you know, they took care of so many different congressmen. And I think also um, the Obama uh, administration made a, a, a fatal miscalculation in, in, in effectively refusing to look for real financial crimes. They, they made a, a decision. It was really a decision made by Tim Geithner and Eric Holder that you know we can't prosecute um, the two big to fail uh, bankers. Um, 
because if we do so, it's going to create another financial crash. Now, I disagree with that. I think that there was a very, very different approach taken in the 1930s. Executives did go to jail, likewise with the savings and loans. So to me, that represented a profound um, political failure, and, and we're going to pay the price for that when the next um, financial crunch comes. I, I, it, it is not that um, you can't uh, find the crime, but if you don't even bother looking for it, then it's very, very hard to prosecute people. Do you think that lack of prosecution of those crimes in any way contributed to the fact that in 2016 we have a Republican, we have Donald Trump being elected president? Yes. In fact, I've written about this before. Um, um, you, uh, if, if, if in many respects, I would say that it foamed the runway for 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 Trump because if you if you start if you, if you refuse to prosecute white collar crime, uh, Jesse Eisinger at uh, ProPublica has written a lot about this. If you refuse to be more aggressive about prosecuting it, then you you effectively make it much easier for a grifter like Trump to to come to the White House. And and by the way, I I would also argue that you know there there are multiple examples of, of, of Trump's um, corruption. Uh, I think every day he's in the White House, he virtually uh, uh, violates the emoluments clause of the Constitution on, on a daily basis with those hotels, for example, that he has in Washington, D.C. He profits uh, from his, his uh, position in the, in the White House, which is a constitutional violation. So, uh, But instead, we, did, we didn't, because we didn't really um, look at that problem and, 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 and uh, tackle it under Obama, it's harder to establish the president that you're going to go after Trump that way. So, it, so instead, we, we, we went after him on the basis of Russia, which, whatever your thoughts on Russiagate, it, it was much more problematic uh, to, to establish a, a direct uh, link uh, between the two problems. And, and um, therefore, we got a very unsatisfying conclusion to Mueller's investigation. You describe how Boeing couldn't get it right because the company had shifted large chunks of its design and manufacturing facilities to disparate parts around the globe, too far apart geographically, in fact, to monitor everything properly, at which point you quote professors Gary Pisano and Willie Shu in the uh, Harvard Business Review, writing, as a result, Boeing encountered problems assembling the pieces such as the horizontal stabilizer from Alenia Aeronautica in Italy and the wing box from Mitsubishi Heavy Industries in Japan, significant redesign and rework were required, and the program suffered major delays. Are Boeing's failures the failures of globalization? Do the crashes of the 737 MAX 8 jets by Boeing reveal the shortcomings of globalization? Yeah, I think so in a lot of ways. For one thing, I would say that if you just engage in global labor arbitrage, to find the cheapest possible labor anywhere around the globe, and, and we've facilitated that uh, by encouraging offshoring. Um, it, 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 you, you effectively, first of all, you, you degrade your your national skill sets. Um, many of the uh, skills that um, historically have been done in the U.S. are, are, are lost uh, to overseas uh, competitors. But there's another um, um, insidious aspect to this, which is that. Um, it's a soft option to um, to just go for lowest cost uh, uh, labor around the, the globe. It, it it means that you um, resist investing to upgrade your your technological expertise and and and, and moving up the technology curve so that you ensure that you got get high paying, highly skilled jobs remaining in the, in this country. And in that sense, for example, um, the U.S. is very very different than countries like um, Germany or Japan, which I think have retained 
viable um, and um, and quite vibrant manufacturing uh, systems because they've they've made a conscious policy decision to keep those onshore and instead of um, uh, using the soft option of offshoring uh, to get cheaper labor, they have just invested more technologically to go higher up in the, in, in the cost curve. So Germany, for example, continues to uh, produce um, high-end profitable cars, which um, are, are um, there's demand for them globally, whereas uh, GM, for example, uh, gets a bailout and then it closes uh, domestic factories in the U.S. and, and expands operations in China. That's, that's a, another classic illustration of the problem. You write how the links between the Pentagon and Boeing began in the late 1990s when the U.S. Department of Defense helped to engineer a merger of Boeing and McDonnell Douglas, the latter, McDonnell Douglas, an important supplier of combat aircraft in the United States. Why did the Pentagon seek the merger of a civilian aviation company with a military aviation company? How is this viewed as being good for the Pentagon, for Boeing, and for McDonnell Douglas? Uh, well, the Bo- uh, the Pentagon wanted to make sure they had um, de- uh, enough domestic uh, suppliers to to give them uh, aircraft. Uh, in fact, um, they engineered it. It was really a covert bailout because uh, McDonnell Douglas had had um, had uh, started to um, do the same kinds of things that Boeing has all, all, all subsequently done, which is that they they began to offshore a lot of their operations. They began to disinvest. Uh, they began to produce an increasingly shoddy uh, and problematic aircraft. They were they were actually not uh, performing well, so uh, the 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 merger was actually a politically engineered one. And even though they called it a merger, effectively, it was Boeing taking over a pretty toxic company, McDonnell Douglas, because the Pentagon didn't want to be solely reliant on on Lockheed to to produce the planes, and uh, and that's why it originally took uh, took place. But as, as I said in the article. Um, one of the engineers who, who worked for McDonnell Douglas and, and um, then subsequently worked for Boeing, L.J. Hart-Smith, wrote, wrote a piece early in 2001 where he warned uh, Boeing not to engage in the same kinds of practices that his old company, McDonnell Douglas, had engaged in, and, um, and Boeing uh, refused to heed his warnings. Is the, is, is the 737-8... Max 8, is that the outcome of greed or is that too simplistic? Does that individualize it too much and ignore bigger systemic reasons the disasters happened, why they happened uh, to some extent? And uh, that they're they're kind of uh, many of these disasters are out of our control or out of even a capitalist corporation's control. Can can we just blame this on greed or is that just too simplistic? Well, it's a largely important consideration because. Um, what happened was they they, they produced a, a larger plant, a larger engine. Uh, larger engines tend to be more energy efficient, but in so doing, uh, the the company had to um, place it in a different part of the, of the wing, which made it less aerodynamically stable. Now, uh, the, to have actually uh, fixed the problem properly would have would have entailed uh, substantial modifications to the existing hardware on the, on, on the plane, and that would have been far more expensive. And Boeing uh, clearly didn't want to, um, you know, they, they had a modular approach. They didn't want to completely reconfigure a production line to, to fix the problems of the 737. So instead, what they did was they, they tried to uh, fix the problem with a, with a software fix uh, through the, uh, what they call the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System, MCAS for short. And so the idea was that you um, enable, uh, allow the computers to fix the problem that the 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 the, the, the uh, expansion of the engine and the, the shift of um, 
uh, the the distortion of the center of the plane center of gravity was created, but it actually made the the, the problem worse. You you can't really use a a, a computer software uh, a problem uh, a solution to solve what is essentially a hardware problem, and 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 um, and it was worse than that because uh, they didn't tell the pilots about this this issue. And they didn't allow the pilots to manually override the computer system. So um, in the Travis article, which I quoted from, and you, you mentioned Greg Travis earlier, he talks about, he, he invokes the image of, of Kubrick 2001 and that famous scene with, with Hal, uh, where he says, um, you know, Hal essentially tries to take over the aircraft. But ultimately in 2001, uh, the pilot is able to uh, um, um, deactivate HAL and and prevent further damage from 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 taking place. The problem we had here is that um, the pilots, even though they saw the, the, the something wasn't right, were not able to manually override MCAT. And and in that sense, it's a unique uh, situation because historically, um, computers do most of the flying for in 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 in, in aviation, commercial aviation. But ultimately, uh, if something goes wrong, the pilot has sovereignty, and that wasn't the case here. You write similarly to the 2008 financial crash, this software solution that was supposed to fix the engineering problem of the new 737 failed because it was based on a flawed paradigm. No computer software can fundamentally repudiate the principles of aerodynamics. And in both cases, the regulatory capture and inadequate financial resources accorded to the authority precluded it from stepping in before disaster struck. How difficult would it be to overcome regulatory capture and inadequate financial resources? Well, uh, it's it, first of all, you pay them more, but of course, we we, we generally in, in, in the post Reagan era like to starve our, our government employees of, of, of proper uh, financial resources. So, <clears throat> excuse me, that's one problem. Um, the second problem is that um, we we um, we make things increasingly complex, and um, and therefore. The regulation, the regulatory framework becomes increasingly complex to deal with that. The the, the real solution should be um, less financial engineering, simpler, which which would allow us to have simpler forms of regulation. But that would entail um, demanding that, um, in, in the case of Wall Street, that you you have less um, complex financial instruments out there, which effectively uh, are, are there to evade regulation and have no real social purpose other than uh, in enhancing uh, the bank's uh, profitability. It's an innovation for innovation's sake. Um, in the case of um, the, the, the FAA and the 737, um, clearly they, they, you, you, you've just got to get more outside monitoring, and, 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 and you need to pay people properly to, to show that you've got good regulators. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, the, if, if proper hardware modifications were established in the 737, you likely could have had a safer plane. But there was nobody there in the FAA to pick that up because nobody had the expertise. In fact, nobody was actually monitoring this. Uh, what, what self-certification meant was that you had one guy from Boeing um, doing the checklist for on behalf of uh, Boeing. The other guy from Boeing was doing the job of the FAA, so it made it impossible for there, there was no early warning system in, in place. Um, in the case of Wall Street, you had a whole bunch of uh, rocket scientists who who um, created these fancy derivatives. Um, they used um, flawed mathematical models uh, to um, to justify uh, the, to illustrate that these these um, um, uh, derivatives were fundamentally sound and wouldn't cause uh, problems. But as 
as mathematicians have subsequently pointed out, the, the, the statistical theories on which they, they based their calculations were not long enough or big enough to, to uh, get a, a proper kind of measure of what was normal. And therefore, um, you had this so-called once-in-a-thousand type of event, when in fact it's not a once-in-a-thousand type of event. Any proper statistical analysis would have shown that these these um, financial derivatives were uh, unsafe and, and mathematically unsound. You write that we view technology not as a man-made invention designed to help us, but as an autonomously fixed condition that bears little relation to human behavior. This lack of integration means that complexity overwhelms us rather than enhances our quality of life. It commodifies us. Labor is just a cost input to be replaced, if possible, by a robot. It is no longer viewed as a source of demand. What happens to labor, to people, when capitalism no longer sees them as a source of demand? And what will what will we be seen as if not the demand creators, the demanders in the supply and demand relationship that we have within capitalism? Well, that's a great question, and we used to understand that. Uh, I mean, uh, Henry Ford, for example, when he started producing his Model T, made sure that he paid his his workers an adequate uh, salary so that they could buy the underlying product. Uh, the, 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 the point is that in the 1930s, we learned that um, labor is not just a cost input, but it's a very important source of, of demand. So, so one of the most important insights of people like Keynes is that he realized that um, you know you, you you can't just simply keep reducing wages to reduce costs because you're also diminishing uh, demand. You need to um, um, in, ensure that. Um, that workers are paid enough so that they can actually uh, buy the stuff and they can buy it out of their their incomes rather than going massively in, in, into debt, which is, again, one of the, the main problems we've had over the last uh, several de- decades. And, you know, the, the other thing is that we have to uh, learn that technology is there as a handmaiden of, of human beings. It's there to make our lives easier. Um, but you can't just simply you know, displace a, a, um, a human being with a machine without trying to figure out how the two might interact t- together. So um, you, you, you don't just simply want um, to have a self-driving car because, uh, you know, you get accidents and, and, and um, you've got to simply, you've got to um, respect the fact that you need to incorporate labor into this decision-making process to make the technology more productive. And that, that's an important insight, which we seem to have lost. We, we just think innovation for innovation's sake is, is, is great. And, and, and we, we've, we've degraded the role of, of, of human be- beings in the process. Earlier this month, President Trump nominated Acting Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan to take that role on permanently. Defense News reported last week key Democrats are signaling that Shanahan will face tough questions and possibly significant resistance in what has already been a bumpy path to him taking over the military's top civilian role. Democrats on the Senate Armed Services Committee are expressing wariness over the former Boeing executives' industry ties. And according to the Defense Department's own biography of Shanahan, he worked as a senior vice president of commercial airplane programs, airplane programs, managing profit and loss for the 737, 747, 767, 777, and 787 programs and the operations at Boeing's principal manufacturing sites. What does Shanahan's nomination by Trump, especially in the wake of these two 737 MAX 8 crashes, and I'm not certain if Shanahan oversaw the profits and losses of the 737 MAX 8 because his Pentagon bio doesn't specify that, what does Shanahan's nomination say to you about the current state of the military-industrial-congressional complex and the Trump administration? 
Well, it's alive and well, and certainly it's another instance where uh, you know um, the, the so-called draining of the swamp is, is uh, turned out to be another lie. Uh, it's it's actually adding to the swamp. Um, you know, it's a bit like having uh, the head of Goldman Sachs ultimately uh, running uh, the the, uh, the SEC or even the Fed. Well, you can argue that a lot of ex-Goldman Sachs people have run the New York Fed. So this is this is exactly the, the, the kind of thing that leads to regulatory capture. You want uh, people to have expertise, but you don't want them to be so embedded in the culture of the industries in which they are regulating uh, so that they are unable to um, do it at a, at a proper arms length, in a proper arms length manner. You, 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 you need to have people who understand these um, um, industries but are not part of these industries. And, and um, Shanahan, unfortunately, I, I, I suspect, will get the nomination because there is a Republican majority and the, the Republicans don't seem to ever care what the, um, the, the actual electric wants. But, but it, it's, a, it's a perfect illustration. You can't have a Boeing guy um, uh, handling the Defense Department in, in, in the wake of this kind of a problem. Um, it, it exposes everything that's wrong with that, and you need people from the outside who understand the problems and therefore could act as a, a more effective arms-length regulator. We have been speaking with Marshall Auerbach, who wrote the Salon.com article, Boeing Might Represent the Greatest Indictment of 21st Century Capitalism. Marshall is a fellow of uh, the Economist for Peace and Security at the Levy Economic Institute at Bard College in New York, and he has over 28 years' experience in investment management. You can follow Marshall on Twitter at M. Auerbach, A-M-A-U-E-R-B-A-C-K. One last question for you, and as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Would you fly in any Boeing airliner today? Actually, I would. Uh, you know, funnily enough, the, the, the 767 and the 777s are, are excellent planes. Uh, funnily enough, those are the ones that are uh, made, largely made in, by the unionized workforce in Washington state. So um, the, the, the company is still capable of making a, a, a good plane. Um, uh, but I'd be much more wary about the, the stuff made out of Charleston. And there's no disrespect to the great state of South Carolina. But even uh, in the article, I, I cite a former whistleblower who points out that there are numerous uh, problems um, at the, South, the Charleston, South Carolina plant, which is a right-to-work uh, state, by the way. So um, I would just say uh, be careful about the, the, the brand you're flying, and, um, and, and certainly uh, um, uh, if you can fly Airbus whenever you can, I would do that too. So did deunionization and right-to-work lead to 350, no, nearly 350 deaths from plane crashes? Well, I wouldn't say I, that's probably take going too far, but uh, but I certainly uh, felt that there was no, there were really no problems with the unionized workforce in in, in Everett uh, and, and Renton, Washington. Uh, they, they they produced a great plane for a long time, but again, uh, Boeing wanted to um, have an, another um, cudgel at its disposal to help moderate wage demands uh, and help uh, reduce the influence of the union. So they they relocated to a, a, a right to work state and. And a lot of um, uh, companies have done that. Um, the the state of unionization in this country is it's in a disastrous state. I think only about nine percent of the population, uh, the working population, is unionized anymore, uh, and most of that is in the public sector, which seems to be the uh, the new area of attack uh, for uh, the for for Congress, especially the Republicans. So I I, I do w- would like to see um, an administration, a future administration, encourage more unionization because I think. That's one of the ways um, we help to um, 
ensure that uh, workers get decent wages and, and um, also um, ensure that the the the, um, the quality of the of the work being done is better as well. You get a less demoralized workforce. Marshall, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. You can find Marshall's writing at a re- on a regular basis at Salon.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Take care. You're listening to the best of This Is Hell, colon, 2019, colon, so far on WNUR. One, two, you know what to do. It's nostalgia time again. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. It's nostalgia time on premium cable. I mean, it's always nostalgia time on premium cable, but man, Muhammad Ali got me listening to the Motor Booty Affair. This is Howen Cosell reporting live from the Motor Booty Affair. Hey, remember when Muhammad Ali, the boxer, refused to go to Vietnam and fight against the North and the VC? Remember why? because it was a racist war. He wasn't getting treated like a human being by the official society here in the USA, and he didn't like that much, so why should he go do the same thing to some strangers on the other side of the world who'd never done him any harm? Remember that? Or something like that? That was when refusing to go to war wasn't easy. You were forced to go to war. If you refused, you went to jail. You lost your championship title. There were consequences. Nowadays, you can't be forced to go to war They just make you so poor you have no choice but to join the army. But it is a choice, isn't it? Remember back when? When the world was sort of different, although since then the cruelties have shifted around from public sector to private sector, from overt coercion to subtle tacit coercion here and there, now and then. Nostalgia is unnecessary. You really just need the proper tools of interpretation, and you are instantly transported from the enlightened present to the benighted past. Watch The Handmaid's Tale and you are back in your worst colonial collective memory. Just by rearranging the emphasis on attention, you can travel back in time while staying in the same place. To colonial times, or to yesterday in Alabama. Nostalgia didn't used to be a dead end, but nostalgia is a dead end. Especially now. We are approaching the future and it looks like crap. Yet we are compelled to think of the past because, eh, it's the only thing we can remember. We are prisoners of our mental deficiencies. Look, it happens. It happened in Rome. It happened in medieval Europe. It happened in 20th century Europe. It happens because our institutions are adolescent. They're stuck in a puerile stage of development. They repeatedly promise reform because the people and the obvious awfulness of the situation demand it. But like lazy teenagers, they continue the same behavior that burned the house down and wrecked the car last time and the time before. They haven't got the maturity to address their issues in an honest way. It's a story as old as time. Caveman teenagers were just as bad. It's not the teenager's fault. It's the fact that our institutions must be indulged and endured as if they were recalcitrant puberty sufferers lying for the sake of convenience, just wanting to get high because life in the suburbs is so stultifyingly boring. I was walking up a hill among some trees just after a rain, a bird twittering amid the foliage beside the path, And I had a great sense of being in North America. Remember North America? And of course I was and am in North America, but I had a deep sense of it. 
and I had just been listening to a podcast about Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, and one scholar had been talking about the landscape descriptions in the novel, the Scottish landscape, the Tyrolean, the Swiss, the Alpine landscapes, how nature was thought of back then, and Rousseau, and the notion of the noble savage, and how the creature was a tabula rasa at birth, but society's intolerance made him a monster. The natural world is conjured up in Chernobyl on HBO. So nostalgic, so bucolic. It all reminds me of the woods around Eastport, Michigan, near Torch Lake, where both M&Ms, Marshall Mathers and Michael Moore, have habitations. Remember M&M? Imagine his nostalgia. Nostalgia for the Detroit of his youth, which was the Detroit of my high school years, which was like the Detroit of today, but with fewer highways, high-end cafes, and combination bicycle, watch, baseball mitt shops. Did Eminem ever go to the cider mill, do you think? Can you picture a young, urban, and white Eminem chilling at the cider mill with his posse, eating a bag of crunchy fried donuts, a brown paper bag stained with donut grease, drinking brown cider out of a styrofoam cup, a water wheel behind him, wheeling water from the Rouge River? I bet he said a lot of stupid things, a whole mess of blarney, as they call it in the Irelands of someone else's youth. How dizzy. I get from the vapor of nostalgia for the Ireland of someone else's childhood. Just beautiful, all this memory and current existence, this pink slime of time's guts. It was a different world when Aretha Franklin and Muhammad Ali were alive in their 20s and 30s and 40s. It was a different world. There was something to live for, soul, bravery, an end to a racist war. These days, soul is on the market, bravery is scarce, and racist, capitalist, imperialist wars have proven themselves never-ending. Bravery is impossible, there's just no room for it, the spectacle has evolved to devour and assimilate even the most radical gesture, even the community work of Nipsey Hussle is quietly savored and swallowed, melting in the mouth of the beast like a throat lozenge. Not to say we haven't made progress. We're much closer to the world predicted in the movie Soylent Green. Remember that movie? Spoiler alert, it was made out of people. That's where the phrase, Soylent Green is made out of people, comes from. Remember those apocalyptic movies of the late 60s, early 70s? Looking back, how naive, yet how prescient were their predictions of the future. Of course you can't remember the future, you can only remember the past. So the only future I can remember is the one predicted by Rollerball and Soylent Green and Planet of the Apes. That future is all in the past. The very idea that we even have a future is passé. The future itself, the time reached after time has passed beneath our feet, brushed past our cheeks, or streamed through the sky over our heads, is a time whose time has passed. The future is a time whose time has passed. The present is all the past was lumbering toward. It's the barrier all our hopes crash into where they pile up in a heap of garbage because they can't go any further. So we should either climb over the rubbish heap of the past into the future or get serious about clearing it away. We can't keep standing here, admiring it, picking out this and that thing we want to salvage, but we're going to. We're going to linger here. Sadly, we must face the fact that the generation that got us to this point is not the generation to lead the way forward. No one over 35 today can see their way out of this wilderness because we're stopped at the barrier. We worship the barrier, we buy and sell the barrier, we set up camp here like Milo Minderbinder or Mother Courage living off the barrier, running our little concessions, this and that, recycled Q-tips, bicycle wheels, reclaimed rags, crackers made of people. I suggest we use a chair as a table, a table as a bed, and a walk-in closet as a gym. Just selling each other the same trash over and over. Wasn't there some rumor that we were in a new millennium? It hasn't taken yet. Clustered around the trash heap of the past, 
wheeling and dealing like money changers in the temple. The next generation is here, though. We need to let them pass, at least not prevent them from clearing a path through the accumulation of mistakes and sins and habitual failures. We may be doomed to resurrect our leadership from the graveyard of failure, but there is another generation coming up. The least we could do is put on our hazard lights so they know they can go around, wave them around, go around, go around, leave us here. We're happy here. You go ahead. We're going to worship some old jackass and keep eating cold leftover french fries out of this to-go container, building our huts of corrugated plastic and plywood. We're used to it. We dug a groove in the album. We're fine. Just leave us here. You go on ahead. Make something of yourselves. Make something besides Soylent Green of yourselves. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! Hi. Uh, thanks for listening. It's Alex here again. I'm sorry about Chuck's absence. Uh, Hopefully he's back next week. I'm working on a special archive episode, and I will have that posted on Sunday with uh, stuff you may not have heard in the last six months. So check our website and social media for more on that. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we will see you for a new show next week because I already got that one booked. Okay, uh, tease and peace for Chuck, memento mori. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.